ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Hey, what is up everyone? Hope you are all doing well wherever you are out there on planet Earth. Or maybe not planet Earth, maybe you're on another planet out there in the cosmos. But anyway, wherever you are, hope you are all having an amazing day. And this week on the Ascend podcast, we headed down to North Wales and we met up with Professor Milton Wainwright. And Milton is a British microbiologist who is known for his research into what he claims could be extraterrestrial life found in the stratosphere. And he talks about the theory of panspermia. And the theory of panspermia panspermia is the theory that life is a cosmic phenomenon. And it did not start on Earth as a chemical process, but was brought from somewhere else in the universe. It really is an interesting theory, and we loved chatting to Milton about this one on the podcast. And I just wanted to say as well, thank you so much to some of the new patrons who have just decided to support the podcast. It really means a lot to us and it helps us to keep doing what we're doing. It pays for things like when we're traveling around all over the place, it might put a few dollars in the petrol tank and it really does. doesn't cover the full amount, but helps us out just a little bit and it really means a lot to us. So if you want, if you, and if you also want to support the Patreon, support the podcast, you can do that for our Patreon page. It really would mean a lot to us. Even if it's just two dollars, the price of a cup of coffee each month, no matter how small it is, honestly, I promise you, it really does help us to keep doing what we're doing. We also have a one-off donation option as well. And a few people after the last podcast we I did with Tom Campbell, a few people said one person said they were out jogging, another person said they were at work, and the podcast really inspired them. So they decided both of them decided to throw ten dollars our way for our one-off donation option, and I thought that was really cool. So if you can support us, please find it in your heart to help us out. It really would mean a lot to us. So anyway, enjoy this podcast with Milton Wainwright, where we talk about the theory of panspermia and everything else in between. Enjoy. First off, I want to say thank you so much for inviting us to your beautiful home as well. Uh-huh. And um, the idea of panspermia is a really fascinating concept, and it's something that I've been questioning and looking into for a long time. And right. I, I really do feel that the idea of panspermia really is a plausible um, theory for the for the evolution of the human species, mm-hmm. and not just the evolution of species, maybe the evolution of the whole cosmos. Um, but could you just f- for people who don't really understand what panspermia is, could you sort of describe what it is? Sure. Um, basically, the word means seeds everywhere. And so a very ancient idea. It goes way back to the Greeks, and people have kind of 
thought about it since then, possibly before. And basically, it's the idea that life came from space. It exists everywhere in the cosmos. So no matter where you go, there'll be life. Now, there are two basic ideas about panspermia. The first one is the regular panspermia, the idea that life on Earth came from space. So there was no life. The planet was rocky and hot and so on, no atmosphere. But as soon as conditions cooled down and became good for life, since life was always coming in, off we went, you see. So that's the regular panspermia. Life on Earth started from space. Rather than starting in the normal accepted view of chemicals coming together, it was already preformed as life, microbial life. Of course, we don't expect elephants to come from space or anything like that. <laughs> but we're talking about very primitive organisms, obviously. Maybe proto-life. That's life before organisms came in. Mm-hmm. Now, the second idea, which we, which I have been particularly working on, is so-called neopanspermia. Neo meaning new. And that is the idea that life continues to come from space. As we speak, if I walk out in the garden, <clears throat> I'm getting covered in life from space. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think panspermia, life from space, is controversial, then the idea that life is continually coming in is even more controversial. And when you think about it, if we accept panspermia, the idea that life came from space, nothing's happened since eons of time. There's no kind of greenhouse being built around the Earth to keep life in. Mm-hmm. So if it came in originally, it must be coming in now. And uh, why not? So what we've been interested in is finding out if life is coming in as we speak. And that is the controversial bit that I've been working on now for best part of uh, well, 15 years or so. Yeah, and are you finding evidence of that now as well with well, your research? we certainly are. Now... Do you want to just move a little bit closer to the microphone? Just yeah. little, <coughs> do you um, want me to go into the whole thing or do you want to break it up and you can say ask me questions detailing? detail in? I mean, you just go into what okay. you, what's some of the, what's some of the, the yeah. key findings that right. you find Basically, okay. So it all started way back in the year 2000. I got involved with Chandra Wickramasinghe. Now, I have to say before we go any further that this theory... <coughs> The modern theory of panspermia was developed by Fred Hoyle, the famous astronomer, and his then-time student, Chandra Wickramasinghe. Hoyle died, but um, Chandra is very much alive, and we've done a lot of work with Chandra over the last 15, 20 years. So the theory, the modern theory, belongs to them too. They of, they're often written out of it these days. You know, NASA and all that, when they talk about panspermia, they conveniently forget the fantastic work done by Hoyle and Wickramasinghe. Way back in the 70s, they had a lot of papers published in Nature on this. And um, so a lot of people, younger people, I guess, are completely uh, writing them out of the story, which is very sad and not very professional. Scientists should quote their sources and a lot of this. So I'm always very, very keen to point out the origin of this modern theory. Mm -hmm. So I got involved with Chandra. And at first we were, the idea basically straightforward. If life's coming in from space, you just go out and meet it. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how far can you get out to meet it? Now, originally we used um, very large balloons, and these were launched from India with very expensive samplers on them. And these samplers, it would cost something like half a million pounds for each launch. Um, so we'd go over to India. The Indian scientists were very good at launching balloons, and we had a very complex system of kind of concentrated in the air, the atmosphere up there in the stratosphere. So we're going as high as we can, and this was 41 kilometers, 25 miles up. Mm. 
So we, we, we have a sampler, we sample, we compress the, the atmosphere up there, and we bring it back to Earth, and very under sterile conditions, we, we pass it through. And we found bacteria at these heights. Now, the question is, of course, are they coming from Earth, or are they coming from space? Now, I think probably the bacteria here are coming from space. And I'll, sorry, from Earth, rather. Let me get that right. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second, the main reason. So anyway, we got written out of that because we couldn't provide any funding. We couldn't get any funding in this country. Can you believe no one would fund the idea of looking for microbes in the stratosphere? Yes. Because it's linked with this panspermia idea, the authorities, the kind of regular scientists, yeah. uh, avoid it like the plague. Um, so I was at a loss then. And then suddenly somebody emailed me the fact that there were two guys in Sheffield, two students, uh, Chris Rose and Alex Baker, who were, they were physicists or engineers, and they had a little kind of uh, hobby, which was leading to a kind of income generation idea. Basically, they were launching weather balloons from the Sheffield area, and they put kind of adverts on them and film it in space. So you could, you could um, <clears throat> say, you know, happy birthday, mum, in space. Or will you marry me in space? Yeah. And people were paying a few hundred quid for this. That's cool. Oh, yeah. That's really uh, cool. And it's called it sentintospace.com if, if you want to <laughs> tell your loved one you love them. <laughs> and they were making a bit of brass out of this. And now they formed a company doing this. So they do, you know, quite complex advertising in space, in, in the stratosphere. And making, but they were launching these balloons for us. So I got in touch with them, and these these two guys are real <coughs> can-do people, engineers. And because of their interest, um, they were fun they had access, and they were fantastic electron microscopists. All right, I'll come back to that in a second. So I got in touch with them, and they were immediately interested. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, okay, okay. just I want you to launch balloons, and we'll we'll design a sampler. And we'll go up there. Everybody's excited about it. And, uh, I mean, at first I thought, well, we're not going to get much out of this, possibly. You know, it's just a chance to continue with the work. I'll just point out here, it's very interesting, you know, science life in general, I guess. When you're doing something, you're happy doing it. But when you stop doing it, you have to look around and do something else. Mm -hmm. Now, had I not been kicked off, as it were, this Indian science, I'd have been sending balloons up before and doing the same old thing but because we had, we had to do something different we had to do something different and initially we designed a launcher which was very sorry a sampler which was very simple i don't know who suggested this whether it was me or the boys but basically we just used a cd tray you know you press a button the cd comes out the tray comes out rather mm -hmm. put your cd on it press a button it goes in so <clears throat> this was fantastic. We could launch this into the stratosphere in a box, all sterile, of course. Everything we do is sterile, controls and everything. This is not, you know, just, this is not ad hoc. It's not just, we really do think about it. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people ask me the question, did you do a control? No, 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 we don't do controls, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's all very well thought yeah. out, obviously. And basically the idea is um, using... Uh, GPS or telemetry or whatever, we can tell the box to open in, in the stratosphere and then we put little discs in the drawer and any particles falling down 
land on the disc, and these discs, only about that big, go straight into the electron microscope, a scanning EM. Scanning EM is a machine that you can look at very small particles, get pictures on a TV screen, wonderful. So we did this, and uh, obviously it closes in space, in, in the stratosphere, and we, we then bring the, the samplers, uh, we bring the samplers down and we examine them. So, um, this was done at around about 30 odd kilometres, and um, it's great to be at the, the launch, you know, you, you, you <coughs> much actually go to a launch and see it. The, the balloon starts off, <coughs> excuse me, about this size, and obviously when it gets really high, when it gets really high, it's massive thing, yeah. you know. And it's got the the, um, the sampler on the bottom of it. So they release it, Chris and Alex release it, and then they gain a car and they chase it. Ah. So they chase it up yeah. wherever. It, it's, it's generally going westerly from, from wherever. And um, when it gets to the height, they open it up and it comes down on a parachute. Then they have to chase it, find it. And I'm told, I never do yeah. this because, you know, they're, they're too dynamic. <laughs> I, I just sit and have a coffee. And uh, <laughs> they, they tell me that they, you know, they, they, they end up in fields and they have to climb up trees. And in one occasion, the, the sampler, the balloon, landed on somebody's house. So they had to knock on the door and say, can we, you know, can we get that off your chimney? Like, Imagine trying to describe that to the people. Oh, by the way, yeah, let's get yeah. a balloon. We're just doing tests to see if yeah. any panspermia in the sky. Exactly. Panspermia, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. panspermia? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right enough to get off my property. Actually, it turns out... <laughs> Balloon now. <laughs> Turns out most people are very interested. You know, they, they kind of obviously go along with it. And get, yeah, what's the balloon for? So anyway, those are just practical problems, but we do it. So anyway, on the first launch, which was from from uh, around Sheffield, around Chesterfield way, they came into my office. Now, in some ways, I don't do a lot for this in, t in terms of actual physical work. They do the, the launching, unless I'm there. They put the sam take the samples. We, we use clean rooms, which are extremely clean, so there's no contamination. And the samples, they investigate with the electron microscopes. And basically, they take images of what they see and what they don't know about, right? So what's interesting to them. Now, this is very good because it's a built-in control. Because they know no biology, they can't uh, Photoshop it or anything, you know what I mean? So they bring these images to me, and my job is to interpret the images and obviously had the panspermia concept to it. So, the first time they, they phoned me up and said, we've got some, we've seen some amazing stuff, can we come round and show you it? So I put it on my computer in my office at University of Sheffield, as then, as I was then. Uh, and um, I was stunned, excited, amazed. I mean, these things happen very rarely in, yeah, in a career, happens. let alone, a, you know, in a lifetime. Some of the images were absolutely, literally, to my mind, out of this world. They were very, very strange. They are on the internet. On my, yeah, I've seen some, of, seen them. some mm -hmm. of them. Especially in particular, the one with the metal, or like the metal. The metal orb. I'll go into that in a minute. Really yeah, metal sphere. <coughs> so there they were. Now I've been a biologist for about fifty years, including my school days. You know, so I know organisms. A lot of young. I'm, I'm sounding like an old man here. <laughs> a lot of young scientists, of course, don't know much about organisms. They straight to DNA. And um, their education, I mean, you've got to remember, when I was doing my education way back in the, the 60s, late 60s, hippie and all that, big fuzzy hair, <laughs> and, and um, what do you call it? Flares, you know, and yeah. <laughs> really cool. In fact, I, I, I was working, well, there's a bit of an aside here, I was working at Butlins uh, before I went to university, holiday camp, yeah. and I had these um, 
these waiter's jackets that I tie-dyed. <laughs> Tie-dyeing was all the rage then, and you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> you, you, you put a shirt, you, you, you tie a, a shirt in a knot or something, and you chuck it in some dye, some cold water dye. You take it out, and it's dyed with, oh, right, with all the colors yeah, really that. funky yeah, colours, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I had a couple of these, and I looked really, you know, cool as... Yeah. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> the sinus of the pastor. I digress. The girls used to, you know, as I walked in the lecture theatre, they just... Um, and the boys, let's not get... <laughs> it was not, the 70s. Let's not... Let, yeah, no, okay, we, 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 Experiment we, we, more than just the labs. Yeah, we didn't have to... We didn't, we didn't have to... We didn't have to, um, you know, mention everything in those days. We could, we could, you could get away with talking about things like... Anyway. That's not going down there. Where was I? Uh, so um, I knew about all organisms. I'm a microbiologist, and I know about bacteria. I know about fungi. I know about protozoa. We don't teach that anymore to kids, to young students, you know. They don't look down microscopes. So immediately they go to DNA and they identify things. So they don't know. Even some very uh, distinguished scientists don't know their organisms. But I had 40-odd years, 50 years of it. So I saw these, and I knew they weren't from Earth, at least... They hadn't been identified on Earth. I mean, obviously, they could be mm. in the corner of the garden, but they've not been seen. So, that, first of all, they were unusual. That was exciting. They weren't the normal protozoa, bacteria, algae that we... And you, the images, if you, you go to my website, you can have a look at some of these images. And uh, there were, one of them was very interesting. It had like a, a proboscis. It has a, like a proboscis and a, a sphincter at the top. And um, it does look depending on how you look at it, somewhat like a, a penis. Right? <laughs> now, of course... Quite, quite fitting for the theory of panspermia. Yeah, exactly. Well. <laughs> We're spreading life throughout the universe. Um, so the Sun newspaper had to have a... So they put the picture of this and said, little green man's member found in space kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's typical of the Sun. I could have done them without that for, for, in terms of scientific... Um, you know what I mean? That was the best of their knowledge, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that was... Actually, one of the big things in science these days is what's called impact. You know, your work has to be known around the world. Mm. And the university, if, you, if you've got a massive impact, they love it. So I was, somebody complained to me about being in the sun. I mean, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't write the article. <laughs> but uh, it, um, it appeared in the sun. So it said, you know, why are you letting stuff into the sun? You know, I said, well, think about it. It's got a massive impact factor. You know, yeah, you cool. want impact beat the sun for impact you know yeah. anyway so saw these amazing things these amazing structures and uh, now I'll come back to the sphere in a minute but <clears throat> so the big question everyone asks is do they come from earth or space I say they come from space why now obviously material can get from earth to, to some of these heights um a volcano can carry stuff up. Obviously, a, a volcano is superheated, so a lot of it will be will be burnt on the way up and everything. You could imagine various mechanisms for getting things up. But when, when people do calculations, they come to the conclusion that nothing bigger than six microns, millions of a meter, six microns, that's very small, can get up there. Anything bigger can't make the journey. Now, all these particles are around 20, 40 microns. So theoretically, they can't get up there. Now, of course, you can't really trust that because the theory may be wrong. So why do I think that these are coming in? The acid test, as far as I'm concerned, is there's no other Earth-like material on the samplers. When we see these organisms, they're pristine. They're on their own, except for 
cosmic dust. There's plenty of cosmic dust. And if they were coming from Earth, we would expect to see them surrounded by Earth organisms, algae, bits of grass, fungi, fungal spores, bacteria, etc. We don't see that. So clearly this material, we think, is not coming from Earth. It's coming in, impact in from space. When we look at the control, the outside of the box, the sampler, we've got all of this material, as you'd expect, because the box has gone up and down. Yeah. Mm. So we see all that. But we never see pollen, particularly pollen, because it's a similar size on our samples. Now, <clears throat> if it were coming from Earth, you'd have to imagine there was some kind of sieve <laughs> around the Earth, which there isn't, mm -hmm. which keeps out all the Earth material and just lets our material go through. Yeah. That can't happen. So this material is coming in. As I say, we see it associated with um, cosmic dust. Cosmic dust makes impact events on our samplers, little craters, and the organisms are around there. There's no life from Earth on our samplers. Could uh, sorry, I was just interrupted there. Could um, could wind have played an impact at all? Could um, could like the force of if we're going in like Newton's uh, theory of uh, gravity forces and that yeah yeah, yeah. well forces yeah that? i mean even fellows of the royal society have said to me it just drifts up there now you know everything has gravity everything uh you know even these small particles they will come down mm -hmm. and they it's difficult to put them up because as i said anything uh less than six microns can go up bacteria can go up but anything the size of our organism shouldn't be able to go theoretically but mm -hmm. forget the theory because you just get into an argument about theory. <laughs> the the big point is where's where's the crap from Earth? Where is it? You would expect to have found on our samples a mass of Earth material, and we were picking out from that mass our organisms that we were saying was coming from space. Mm -hmm. They're not there. The Earth material isn't there. So that to me is absolute evidence. And no one else. I've I've given talks about this throughout the, over the world to professional scientists. I gave a talk at the um, UN Space Agency. <clears throat> and I say, you know, shoot me down in flames, make, yeah, make yeah. me, make, you know, make me cry, yeah. punish me, <laughs> punish me for my ideas. You know what I mean? Uh, come on, and nobody can do it. Nobody, nobody has yet given me um, an explanation for this, other than the explanation. How, I'm how much material, material is actually coming through? Obviously, a very small amount of material. Yeah. You got to remember, this is equivalent to a fishing trip, right? So we're sending these samplers up. We might hit a cloud of this material. And we, we, you know, so on, on one occasion we found nothing, mm. which is very good because we'd expect that. If it was coming from Earth, we'd expect always to find Earth material. But we must have gone through a cloud between, between these. So this material is coming down in clouds. In fact, it's more complicated than that. What we think is this material probably came from comets, which is in line with Hoyle and Wickramasinghe's theory about cometary panspermia. Yeah. We think life originates in comets and it's spewed around the cosmos. And um, it probably comes down in big lumps of ice, or it originates in big lumps of ice that break down and smaller. So possibly these organisms are in little, very minute ice particles, mm. which when they hit the surface of the sampler, um, evaporate, ablate, and we're left with the organism there. So it doesn't come down on its own. It's protected by ice and so on. Yeah. And this is why some of the some of the material damages the surface because it's got the ice particles got mass it's got you know it impacts yeah. so this is why we think this material is coming from space and no one yet has given me an explanation as to why i mean i've had a number of my colleagues um said uh well 
we can't have an explanation, but you must be wrong, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> uh, there must be an explanation, but we can't find it. I mean, you've got to imagine, I, I, I divide problems into one bath or, or a million bath problems. And this has been an a million bath problem. I, I lay in the bath for hours <laughs> thinking about this. So, oh, yeah. you know, and... Um, so whatever we see, it's just... Yeah, well, no, no, hey, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I get a lot of good points from my wife and other mm. common sense points because scientists are, you know, we're, we're thinking along a certain track and then somebody comes along and says, well, have you thought about, you know, something very mundane. Um, this is why I like giving um, talks to amateur astronomy societies because, first of all, they, they engage with the idea better. They've got more open minds than scientists. Most scientists have got incredibly closed minds. And professionally, they can't have open minds these days anyway. I could talk about it later. But, you know, astronomers, local astronomers, looking at the skies, they've got really open minds. And they will ask you a question, obvious, often ask you an obvious question you, you've never kind of thought about because it's too obvious yeah. for my great mind, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> uh, but um, so I do that. So could it be something simple as to see a, like a force interacting up there, like see an aeroplane went over about 24 hours ago yeah. and it's left over some form of yeah. residue in yeah. the air, which yeah. is interacting right. with I mean, I, mean, I, I, I can answer that straight away yeah. and say that, that for me, because obviously I'm understanding of it as well, I'll let yeah. you jump mm. in, but for me, I know that your samples are much higher than what an aeroplane goes. Yeah, well, let me talk about it, because that's an obvious source of contamination. If they're, not, if they're coming in, which, which I'm saying, why are they coming from the International Space Station um, rockets and so on? Um, now, first of all, most of this material is sterilized before it goes up there. And again, <laughs> the answer to the question is always the same. If it was coming from aeroplanes and things, you would get the obvious stuff, wouldn't you? Grass. Mm. fungi yeah. spores everything you wouldn't get strange why would a strange organism be flying on a spy plane unless mm. unless the CIA well <laughs> yeah, we, we may come, we may come back to that later <laughs> and let, you know why you know we would expect to get ordinary box standards from anywhere people say oh it, it comes off um, all this junk in space okay well, I, I can listen to that but where's the spores where's the grass yeah. shards of grass you know my, minute shards of grass it, that would be the common stuff that should be where it's coming it isn't I was mentioning the, the, the 10 bath, 1,000 bath problem. So obviously, I'm being very bold here and say nobody can tell me an answer except for the one I get. But obviously, I, I live in fear that one of you guys will say, well, have you thought about this? And I'm, you know, shot down in flames. No, no. No, I mean, I mean anybody. No, yeah, I no. But just a minute, let me just finish this off. So I got this email from a, a student in America. She was um, obviously a bright kid. And she said... Um, if this stuff's coming from space, why isn't the whole of the moon covered in it? Because we, we know what the moon's covered in. So I had a fraction of a hush, a fraction of a panic moment. And then I, the answer obviously came to me. Of course, there's no atmosphere on the moon. Anything coming in is going to be smashed to smithereens, totally destroyed. Because the great thing about this work, you could only do it on a planet like Earth with an atmosphere. Because the atmosphere is slowing the material down. Some of it's coming straight down and burning up, but some of it's coming at an angle and it can survive the journey. Without mm. an atmosphere, you couldn't do it. So you can't do this on the moon. There's no point sending a, you know. That's some, a really good point, actually. Yeah, some people might say, um, well, why don't you have an observatory on the moon? You can do this. And, well, it won't work because it's, it's, it's hitting the moon. Yeah. And, and, mm. So that, that, that kind of relaxed me a bit. So other than that, no one. And of course, a lot of scientists aren't. Um, engaging with this there's nobody writing well there was one guy wrote very early on and he mentioned um 
What's called Occam's Razor. Now, Occam's Razor, have you heard of Occam's I Razor? I have, yeah. Yeah, Occam's Razor, of course. It's basically the most obvious thing is going to happen. If I see an elephant in the garden out there, either the elephant came from, well, there are many, many possibilities. Maybe the elephant came from space. Now, Occam's Razor, to, what's most likely is that there was a circus visiting last night yeah. and the, the elephant got out. That's Occam's Razor. You don't go to complexity, you go to simple idea, the simple solution first, right? Mm. The trouble with Occam's Razor, you, you can cut yourself on Occam's Razor. Ah, yes. Right? Because, so. So for example, I might, I might spend all, all day showing there was no um, circus in North Wales yesterday. Just absolutely was. So what, 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 what Occam's Razor doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. You can't just say things because they're the simplest and get away with it. Mm-hmm. So this suggestion when we f- is that Occam's Razor tells us it must come from Earth. Mm-hmm. There's all this biology all over the place. You've got biology at 30, 40 kilometers in the st- stratosphere. It must come from Earth. Well, they've cut themselves an Occam's Razor because yeah. they're not taking into account all what I've just been saying about where's the Earth material up there, you know? So, um, so that kind of so I've never nobody has really written a paper or contacted me and say where I'm going wrong here. So as far as I'm concerned, this material is coming in from space. Mm-hmm. So it's coming in from forms of comets and other uh, other particles. In yeah, space. well, that's one possibility. That's just a suggestion. I just wanted to, to jump in because that before we go firing off too far away. Yeah. Cause I wanted to before we start talking about the theories of it i want yeah. to just ask a question about it like sort of just to play devil's advocate because obviously i've looked sure. at the no you i want devil's advocate yeah, yeah. i don't mind because i've looked into the theory of panspermia and just yeah. um i mean i'm with you on board of it yeah. don't worry yeah. about that but i just want to i don't ask, need to worry about that yeah. <laughs> I just want, yeah. you can be on board or not please don't I be on board ask, i just want to ask a question that sort of um a few questions on it that just to just to sort of answer the audience no, what they will no, know you, what you, they you are, no, and a question away. i want to ask is is because a lot of people talk about the radiation. Yeah. That would, the radiation would yeah. affect the, the samples. Yeah. How, what would yeah. you say to that? Yeah, a lot of people come up with that. Yeah. Um, in fact, radiation, ionizing radiation, is not the major problem because these are very small organisms. So the ionizing radiation is a problem, but not a major problem, particularly if these material, this material is covered in... You see, a lot of people think this material is coming wafted in on its own, but it will be covered in cosmic dust, for example. So you'll have layers and layers of materials, only all is small, not the yeah. you know, size of a football. Yeah. But because they're small organisms and they're covered in material, ice, for example, this stops a lot of the problems. The really big problem, in fact, people kind of ignore, is ultraviolet radiation. Now that is the killer, and that's the stuff that kills biological cells. Um, fortunately, the ozone layer and the clouds keep out all the vitamins. Sorry, vitamins. Where to get vitamins from? <laughs> all the UVC. All the UVC is filtered out. So fortunately, because we couldn't live in a, in a place with, you know, receiving UVC from the sun, yeah. we get UVA and B, and that's bad enough, as you know, if you sunbathe, yeah. um, you know, you UV can get risk. cancer and you get burnt from a, UVA and B, which are, are less more benign than UVC. So UVC, I've got a well out here. My water's passed through a UVC f- uh, sterilizer. So I can drink it, otherwise it would be full of E. coli and stuff. Mm-hmm. So UV kills bacteria, it kills living organisms. And there's tons of it out there, of course, from the sun. There's no clouds and ozone layer beyond that up there. But as you know, when you're sunbathing, if you put a shirt on, the flimsiest thing, you're protected. Mm-hmm. Because 
UV, A, B, and C don't go through materials like that. Yeah. So if they're covered in cosmic dust, they're safe. If they're covered in ice, they're more safe uh, than if they were just on their own. Mm -hmm. um, so, in fact, when you look at... People obviously say um, they've come a long way, they've had to survive. Increasingly, we, we're aware that microbes, small organisms, can survive a lot of problems. You know, a lot of... Uh, can they survive long distance as well, yeah? Uh, well, the, the, it's not a question of long distance, it's a question of time. Time is the issue. I mean, if you're coming millions of miles and so on and so forth, so forth. And that is a, a, a major concern. Can they survive a lot? Of I don't know the time it would take from materials to come from comets, because they're closer. Mm -hmm. But certainly, obviously, in the deep cosmos, you're talking big time. Here's an interesting question. Could they just to jump in? Could there be something on the comet itself, some sort of material or property that would actually protect that enzyme? Oh, before, absolutely. Before it came, like sort of released itself yeah. from that. Oh, absolutely. If you're thinking about comets, of course, you got all this carbon dust. You got. I mean, they used to call them uh, dirty snowballs. We now we now know that comets are much different from what we. So there's some areas at 40 degrees centigrade. Would you believe? So life could certainly exist in these materials, yeah. and. Um, Life could form in comets or be concentrated in comets, mm. and they can then spew it out. Um, so, time is a big problem. Um, you, you know, let's get you know people talk about black holes and uh, they talk about uh, you, you know, multiverses. Yeah. Let's say that there is a some kind of wormhole bringing these from. You know, let's let's get really um, off off the edge and say this material is coming down through some kind of wormhole from distances. So, you know, you don't have to restrict yourself to the idea that time is what we imagine time to be. Yeah, definitely. It might be far more complicated than that. Yeah, it probably undoubtedly is. So that seems, that's maybe people might think, well, that's just an excuse because you're trying to get around it. But, you know, there are other possibilities. Yeah. Uh, go on. Oh, sorry, I was going to say I want to definitely go to them possibilities because one yeah. of the possibilities I want to touch on was life by intelligent design as well. Mm. But I want before I go there, to be, I want to jump back and ask yeah. you a question about the silver orb. What was yeah, the discovery? Yeah, well, titanium. Yeah. yeah. Now, <coughs> one of our images, if you again, if you go to the website or maybe you can put them some pictures on here. Yeah, we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. yeah okay. So. Great. There's a sphere, a wonderful, perfect sphere on one of the samplers, surrounded by nothing, no material from Earth. Again, yeah. I keep on emphasising that. <laughs> Um, and it's beautiful. It's got, when we looked at the surface, now one little point before I go any further. Fortunately, on our scanning electron microscope, we're looking at these particles. We've got what's called EDX or EDAX. It's a machine that you can put a crosshair on the stuff you're looking at. You press a button and you get an elemental composition. Comes up little spikes. It tells you carbon, nitrogen. Nitrogen is not so easy, but carbon, zinc, silicon, whatever. So we know what this particle is made of. So we only look at particles which are made of carbon, oxygen, and possibly a bit of nitrogen. As I say, the machine's not good at picking up nitrogen. Yeah. We don't consider particles that contain silicon, iron, etc., because these are inorganic. They're not life. Carbon, oxygen, a bit of nitrogen is the key signature for life. So that's what we, we look at. So we know our organisms are carbon-based. We know they look like organisms. We know they've got what we call bilateral symmetry. That is like you. If I put a line through you, you're the same either side. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I pick a rock up and put a line through it, it's not. Because it's you know living organisms have bilateral symmetry. And these organisms have that. Mm -hmm. So we know they're organisms. They're not just bits of dust. S some 
great mind at one of these conferences said to him, how do you know they're not hoover dust, bits of hoover dust? That's <laughs> well, I said, we do use clean rooms, you know. Ex <laughs> we, we, I mean, I get a little bit, as you can see, exasperated by people coming up with these stupid questions, like, like as if we would... I would be sitting here making these amazing comments if it was a bit of hoover dust. You know, we've <laughs> we've taken all we've we've, we've 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 thought about this. You know what I mean? We've thought about we thought we actually have thought about gravity, yeah. which a lot of people don't know about. Seeing, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so there's a lot of thought going into this. This is not just a you know a guy sat in a farmhouse in Wales telling this story to in his rocking chair. <laughs> in his rocking chair, you know. <laughs> Once upon fight. a time, <laughs> this is serious stuff, and uh, our extended group have got mathematicians and they've got phys you know this is a, a, a professional setup um so anyway we've got this sphere and when we looked at the surface we could see filaments and filaments are a good indicator of life because filaments these filaments um, bifurcate that is like a tree they go like that you know mm -hmm. now that's a good indicator of a living organism because not many not much in the way of inorganic material bifurcates like that like a tree you don't get i mean mm -hmm. you don't get things look at but so so this is filament on the outside of them, covered in a, a layer. Now, when we did the EDAX, when we looked for the elemental analysis, it came up as titanium. Wow. That's fascinating. With a little bit of zirconium. I was amazed by that, obviously, because you've got zirconium. Now, now, it could be a solid zirconium ball, or it could be sorry, uh, titanium, or it could be titanium oxide. But anyway, it's got titanium in it. Um, now, for some reason, when, when I saw this, I said to Chris and Alex, I said, uh, can you go back and move the ball across? Because they have, this, they have the samples. And to my amazement, they had an amazing machine on the microscope that could do exactly that. Like a little, very fine needle that pushed the ball across. And when we pushed the ball across, lo and behold, there was material oozing out. And behind the ball, there was an impact event, a crater. So this thing, I did the sampler at high speed. That means it's coming in. You can't really send something up at high speed. Well, you could theoretically, but not a ball this size, sphere this size. So it's coming in. It's at the sampler. It's made a, and oozing out of it is organic material. So inside the ball, there's organic material. On outside, there's organic. So this is a sphere that's got life inside it. Wow. Now, what are the implications of this well it could be that the organism forms this on the outside mm -hmm. or it could be like a hermit crab maybe the, the organism wherever it was in the comet found this ball and got inside it like a hermit crab nice little home you know mm. or as you were mentioning before and i had to i had to put this down as a serious possibility that these balls are part of what we call directed panspermia directed panspermia means life sent to earth from another civilization wow. Now, I only mentioned that um, as a, to, to complete the, the argument. Now, if I, if I said to you that a former civilized, or a civilization out there in the cosmos centers life, or spewing life over the, the cosmos, you'd think I was a, a, a sci-fi nutter, right? I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No, 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 no a lot of people might say this is sci-fi. Now, the person who gave the modern version of this was no, no, none other than Francis Crick of DNA fame. Now, if I'd have said it, Everybody would have laughed, you know. Because you're a Nobel Prize winner like Francis Crick, people take you more seriously. So he writes a book with a guy called Orgel, and um, he says maybe life was sent to, to Earth from space, some kind of experiment. Yeah. We don't know anything about it. 
in a rocket. He, he men- I think he mentions a rocket. Other people have suggested maybe aliens came here and it's part of their uh, their poo. You know, life started on alien poo and all this, you know what I mean? <laughs> they, they weren't very, like us, they're not too bothered about polluting the environment when they yeah. came here. You know? So there's all these possible theories. It's, it's all conjecture because we haven't found the spaceship. We need to find the spaceship with a message, the little tag. This came from the planet Zenon. Um, we're doing an experiment on you guys. So it's a nice idea, yeah. worthy of conjecture. Very plausible as well. Plausible, but you can't seemingly prove it unless you find the rocket. Or you find the spheres coming in from space. Yeah, that's that's the gold mine, isn't it? Yeah. You find exactly where these spheres are. Yeah. Because now, yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt there. No, sorry, keep going. I was just going to say, if these spheres are coming from a, such a long distance... Um, they take, for example, like a rogue planet when it's out yeah. there drifting in space for a long time. There doesn't seem to be any sign of any organic life on yeah. that planet on that planet at all. Yeah. And how is anything going to survive a such a long trip without any star to give it some form of energy? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the, there are forces which can solar wind and so which can move stuff around. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you think about it, Crick's idea although plausible was a bit narrow sighted because he's talking about a rocket now if you were going to populate earth or any other planet you wouldn't send a rocket because that's a one event mm-hmm. the rocket the stuff has to crawl out and go all over the, you know whatever yeah. what you'd send is billions of little bits yeah, of spheres spheres are perfect yeah, spheres absolutely perfect for this job and of course the conspiracy theorists immediately say it's the cia who are doing it yeah the CIA are spend, spend it, spend, spreading organisms around to kill you guys, you know what I mean? Have you noticed it's always the CIA? It's, it's never the Russians, it's never the um, <laughs> Iranians. It's always an inside job, it's, it? it's always yeah. these nasty Americans, you know what I mean, who saved the world twice, at least from despair. These nasty Americans are, are poisoning us with all these things. Well, again, I don't know. Maybe it's mm-hmm. it. Maybe I found, maybe the CIA are after me. <laughs> don't tell them. You don't mention where I live. Yeah. Maybe the CIA are after me because they they've been doing that. All this is nice conjecture. It's good, it's good sci-fi. It's good conspiracy theories. But if if you look at it scientifically, it's plausible, but not by any means demonstrated. I mean, we always perceive um, when we look at the the whole perspective, of, like the alien conversation. We always perceive that if aliens were to come here, it would be physical form. And they would have yeah. to like land the spacecraft like physically yeah. in that back garden there, but not necessarily because if it was a race that was more advanced they could just they could like life but like the theory of life intelligent their life sorry the theory of life by intelligent design could be sort of i mean just like we do now i mean we have experiments and um and obviously you know this being a biologist you have certain experiments and you manage that experiment from afar you don't actually you don't you you don't um allow your own sort of um yourself to actually physically touch that bacteria because you would affect the results yeah, yeah. you manage that system yeah, from afar yeah, exactly and that could be the same situation what an alien yeah, race wonderful. is doing. i mean all this is wonderful it's conjecture that's the problem yeah. how do you demonstrate it yeah. you know i mean i could go on all day about these uh, about making up making up suggesting ideas and they're all great they're all plausible but how do you demonstrate it mm-hmm. um i mean i have no doubt that people are seeing strange things i mean you know, as a bona fide scientist, I'm supposed to say I don't believe in UFOs. Yeah. Well, why would I say that when there's so much information coming out from people, you know, like pilots or intelligent people, not used to, if, if the, the old 
comment about UFOs. Yeah. If these pilots are seeing some, I don't want these guys to be flying me around. If they're really hallucinating, <laughs> they're seeing objects the size of football pictures in front yeah. of their window. I don't want to get on that plane if these guys... If, <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, I'd, yeah, okay, I'd like to see them. But in terms of these guys are so mad, they're making this up, two of them, having a conspiracy theory to make this up. And they lose their jobs if they mention it. It doesn't make sense. So there's something happening out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I have no, no proof of it. But to say that UFOs are just a waste of time is just absolutely not scientific. And it annoys me that there are many scientists who just dismiss all this stuff. Yeah. If, if they were seeing elephants, you know, in the back garden, they would say there's elephants. You know, you can't just go around dismissing evidence from people just because you don't want to believe that evidence. Mm-hmm. It's not part of your mindset. Yeah. So here's an interesting question. So say from a, like a synthetic point of view, would we have the, the possibility now to do this ourselves? Would we have the possibility oh, absolutely. To, do, to do a form of panspermia on, yeah. on another yeah. planet? We've kind yeah. of already done it, really, because there's, yeah. been, there's yeah. been a lot of um, yeah. Yeah. things sent out into space so we yeah. can actually... Um, yeah, but I'm talking about I'm not talking about sending things out to space. I'm no, but them things, what we send out to space, will, be, will have organisms and molecules yeah. on them, yeah, yeah. which is now going into space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All we could do is... I mean, you've got to remember that all planets, uh, rocky planets, they said, if material's coming out, it's... it's Naturally, impact events like yeah. the one that's supposed to have killed the dinosaurs will be sending material out. Yeah. So Earth organisms will be going out. I wrote a paper, a conjectural paper again, about an idea I had of archipanspermia. Basically, uh, we took all we took all building materials, rock, concrete, cement, mm. and we found microbes inside them. And this is why we call it archi from architecture. So the idea is, if an impact event hits the modern Earth, it's New York. All this material is going to be sent out with building blocks, building, you know, yeah. into so, so <clears throat> concrete is going to arrive on a planet <laughs> with an organism in it, mm. you know. And we're talking very small yeah. amounts, not not massive blocks. So this is what I call the archipanspermia. So it's a good idea. It's a good idea, but again, demonstrating it. Um, so yes, somebody could be doing this. They could be sending these particles to us, um, and um, we could do the same to them. Now, there's one interesting little aside here, which is a, a, a one of the many mysteries. When you get involved in this work, you start, unfortunately, getting mysteries. Mm. And a lot of people say, if you say the word NASA, you're bound to get mysteries. And, and here's one of them. Two or three years ago, a scientist on the International Space Station, which is way, way above where we're sampling, was cleaning the windows, apparently, and took some material and found life on the outside of the windows of the of the International Space Station. Russian Russian scientists took it down, wrote a paper about it. There apparently life on the outside, outside, not inside, not come from the astronaut on the outside. Now, if this is true and they find our type of organisms, this would be QED. This would be fantastic, wouldn't mm. it? It's gone quiet. NASA won't say anything. They say we know nothing about it. There's a paper written, news reports in Russia. Guy's talking about it. He's got an address. He's a scientist. Nothing. What's gone? What's got, What's happening? Why has it gone dead? Yeah. We can't find anything about this. Um, is it being quiet? Is, is I mean, you would think if they had demonstrated demonstrable evidence, it was wrong. They would have told us. But it's gone quiet. Why has it gone quiet? And this is why conspiracy theories develop. NASA must be hiding something, mm. and so on and so forth. And this is when I start beginning to wonder what the hell is happening. I mean, I'm working in a very scientific, local idea, and all my parameters are scientifically checked and available, 
but I don't know what the hell is going on <laughs> outside, you know, yeah, into conspiracy theories and so on. But this is very strange. Why has it gone quiet? Um, why has nobody told it's a, it's a load of rollocks <laughs> or it is reality? What is happening? So there's your conspiracy theory if you want to jump on it. Um, uh, so, yeah, people could be, uh, other civilizations could be doing this. Um, I mean, people always say, well, is there life elsewhere in the cosmos? Now, this comes into probability, right? The probability is since there's so many billions of rocky planets, there must be life elsewhere. But the problem with probability is it doesn't tell you about fact. And a good example of this I always quote is, I was once in, in India and a, a mathematician was talking to me. He said, you don't actually buy a lottery ticket, do you? You must be stupid. Do you know the, you know the odds, the probability of you winning? You could fall out of bed and die, bang your head on the floor, and that's more probable than you win the lottery. You're stupid for buying them. And I said, hang about. Every, every week nearly, somebody wins. Are they stupid? They're multimillionaires. Not as stupid as you, apparently. Uh, so probability tells us about probability, but it doesn't tell us about reality. So although in terms of probability, there's life elsewhere, there's still the possibility that life is restricted to this planet and there is no life anywhere else. I think most scientists would say yeah. that's unlikely, but it's still something you have to accept as a possibility. Something that I'm thinking about right now is um, a lot of scientists say that we come from the Big Bang. That's the standard theory of, yeah. um, of life. right? So we're expanding constantly. Yeah. The further and further out we go the chances of organic life must go cease to exist because the further we go out, they're still in the premise of creating pre-cellular life because it's too far out and it's too new. Whereas the inner circle where the Big Bang would have started would be the key component for where there will be some form of organic life. Right. Based on the premise of like, that's more older and it's more had more chance to develop that. Sure. So what I'm thinking now is, is this a plausible effect to say that we're at the more beginning? We must be the, the real element of the birth of civilization, really, because look at the state of us. We are the advanced molecules to where we are. Mm. This is so how old we are, really. Yes, really. Right. So we must be one of the oldest yeah. parts of the universe, really. Yeah. My response to that, of course, is not of course, but possibly. You can only argue about what you think you know. Now, there are people who don't believe in the Big Bang. Fred Hoyle and Chandra were believers in the idea of steady state, the idea that the universe always existed and it's steady state rather than from a Big Bang. Of course, Fred Hoyle famously uh, joked about the so-called Big Bang. That's where the idea came from. He's talking and says, yeah. these, these young guys have come up with this idiotic idea of a Big Bang. It starts from a singularity and boom. Yeah. <laughs> and since then, we've believed all this, right? We've been told it, we believe it. A lot of scientists are beginning to find complexities in it because yeah. a lot of it is what's called contingent. It, every idea you develop depends on the idea before that being right. Mm -hmm. And if one of those building blocks is pulled out, the whole idea falls down. So a lot of people talk about multiverses, which for which I can see no evidence, but it's a nice idea. Keeps people like Brian Cox talking on telly. And, uh, you know, uh, and all this, uh, a lot of it, so... Maybe the Big Bang didn't. I mean, they're talking about mini Big Bangs. They're talking about all kinds of things to answer basically the problems inherent in the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. But let's assume the Big Bang is right, as most people think it is. Um, then, yeah, I mean, 
the philosophical point, let's get philosophical. Everybody asks me, where did life begin? And I say, well, why, did, why is life supposed to have begun? Why wasn't it always thus? This sounds kind of religious. I'm, I'm an agnostic. I'm not an atheist. I'm not religious in any way. But it's a possibility that life was forever. It didn't start. The problem is our minds are so tuned to the idea of beginnings and ends. You know, this interview begins, marriages begin end, you know, holidays begin end, life begins and ends. We can't put through our mind the possibility of life always was. It's a bit like, mm-hmm. um, what do you call it? Infinity. You can't put your mind around infinity, but scientists tell you infinity exists. Scientists could tell you that life always was and you'd have to believe it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So maybe life didn't originate anywhere. It always was and just been processed. You can't get your mind around that. I can't get my mind. But let's just have a philosophical point about that. I mean, to my mind, the, the, the idea that life originated on this planet from chemicals, the normal theory, is so fundamentally ridiculous. I mean, so fundamentally difficult. Let's not call it ridiculous. Yeah. might be explained. But it's so mm. fundamentally difficult that I can't see how that could have happened. But then that begs the next question. If it didn't, didn't uh, set up here, where did it come from? It must have originated somewhere. And I was just going to throw you jump in. I was just going to see it as well. Is that could be the possibility that the whole uh, universe and cosmos itself is actually sort of some sort of living organism that's yeah. evolving. Yeah, you're very much... Yeah. He's up with all the ideas. It's good. Yeah. He's read all the... These are the new ideas that... that, that well, first of all, that the cosmos was... The cosmos is there for life. The main reason for the cosmos is life. And maybe life always was. It doesn't have to originate from from chemicals in a warm little pond and all this. Um, But the problem with life forming, the complexity is so mind-boggling in terms of getting simple things like, relatively simple things like membranes and and nuclei and so on. Proto-life turning into life or becoming life. But then you've got the thing, you've got DNA, and then the complexity of DNA. I think most biologists don't even begin to understand the complexity of DNA. You know, mm-hmm. this is a, a super coil material that uncoils and in, within nanoseconds. You know, it's a, an incredibly complicated thing. And how that evolved by natural selection, a process of natural selection on a molecular basis, it, it, to my mind, I can't even begin to think of it. Um, so maybe life always was. <laughs> And people will uh, will laugh at that and say, "Well, you can't get away with just saying that. That's just saying, you know." Me. That's what Hawking believed as well, wasn't it? Is he, that right? Yeah, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well. Oh, sorry, it's not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a genius after all. It's, it's <laughs> all gonna, down to Hawking. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to question before as well when we were talking about we, we were talking about um, sort of in terms of like engineering of the cosmos, like we've seen before, life by intelligent design. I was actually thinking the. I mean, have you questioned as a theory that there could be multiple things going on? So it's not just that's, that's a good. So it's not just life by intelligent design. Maybe you have that as well, but you also have the, the cosmos itself being like an, an organism that's just sort of it, this is what it does everywhere. It does this everywhere in the cosmos? It, it spews out this this material that creates life all over the place. Yeah, but yeah. also at the same time, intelligent beings do. There this are as local well. events. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously <coughs> that is thick. I mean, I think um, <clears throat> you know, I. I I accept the concept 
largely accepted concept of natural selection and evolution once you've got your organisms. I mean, I was talking to um, a guy came to my gate <clears throat> the other week who was a Jehovah's Witness, and he was talking about intelligent design. Now, there's nothing wrong with the idea of intelligent design. It's, um, it makes people think. It makes people think about the complexity of life. People like Bay, uh, who've written all these books, these are intelligent guys. And it makes you think, it doesn't really answer the question, but at least it makes you think about the complexity. How did this complexity ever get going? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously, if you have an intelligent designer, you've got all problems of where is he sitting with his ruler and all, you know, yeah. who, who are his design. So I said to this Jehovah's Witness, I said, he said, look at the human being, how, how fantastically designed we are. I said, look, mate, I've got terrible knees. He picked the wrong person for yeah, that one, Exactly, picked the wrong person. <laughs> I've got terrible knees. I'm in agony with my damn knees. Uh, if that designer invented the human knees for us to walk upright on these things, that was a bad day's work, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, we are not designed to be standing up on two feet. Uh, or, well, if we are designed, it's a bad design, and we could do better. I mean, what's wrong with wheels, for example? You know, we're much better if, if, if the designer invented wheels. Extremely difficult to evolve, but let's have a few wheels, and we're fantastic, unless my bearing sees. Um, so, you know, Design in that at that level is nonsense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody. I didn't got, mean design by that level. Yeah, I meant design yeah, yeah. in terms of like, see, extraterrestrials or yeah. ourselves doing what we yeah. do on the planet, yeah. spreading the form of panspermia yeah. yeah. around. Yeah. Let me just interject here. We're talking about um, natural selection. This is a very important point about this. If if and I don't know why this material is not coming in, is coming in from space rather. It's a fantastic opportunity because it brings in DNA. We're talking about DNA. There's no other material we can imagine. Yeah. Life, if it exists in space, has got to be based on carbon. It has. It can't be based on silicon. All this science fiction crap you get. You know, biochemistry works for carbon. I mean, never say never. You know, it's easy. <laughs> when I pick up the papers tomorrow, and silicon life form found in Barnsley. You know, I'm, I'm going to look ridiculous, aren't I? But you know, you've got to keep. Keep things in proportion. Life is going to be carbon-based. Life as we know it, Jim, <laughs> is carbon-based. And life as we can imagine is going to be carbon-based. And it's going to have DNA or, or a similar component for, for replication, so information. Now imagine we're stuck on this little planet here. Got sheep, caterpillars, grass, plants, everything. Wonderful biodiversity. But imagine if our evolution is influenced by material coming from space. This material... It's got DNA in, by the way. We checked for DNA. We found DNA in this material. This material is bringing information in from space. And that can speed up evolution, right? It's not a closed system like a planet Earth. It's an open system. All the information in the cosmos can come here. And that can speed up evolution or, or slow it down, possibly, or bring diseases even. Mm. So we're, we now see biology not as a, a, an Earth-restricted event, but a massive cosmic biology. So in future, if I'm right, students will not be biology, they'll be cosmic biologists. Yeah. They'll yeah. bring all this into their biology. I, you know, I, It's very interesting about how knowledge um, develops. When I first started talking about panspermia at the University of Sheffield, I was berated by some of my colleagues and I had a very amusing moment because the first year textbook, about 10, 15 years later, mentions panspermia in the first year textbook. Oh, wow. Wow. There we go. It does exist. It's reality. 
it becomes reality now. Mm-hmm. And if anybody says, well, you're talking about panspermia, I say, it's a first-year textbook. You can't complain about that. You know what I mean? So once it gets in the first-year textbook, it's reality. But, uh, yeah, so information is coming from the cosmos. Wow. So in that sense, we are products of the cosmos. And you could then bring in all the conjecture about ancient aliens and all this kind yeah. of thing. Maybe we've had aliens bringing information to us mm. or they're, they're sending information. You know, again, I can't prove this. It's nice stories and uh, you could write a nice book about it, TV program. But where's the proof? Where's the evidence of it? Well, but it's a good idea. Sorry there. Um, yeah, we're, we're actually constantly evolving and creating some some new, new like, um, form of like life, really. I mean, Chalmers University, they've actually just... They create a new type of liquid that can store the sun's energy for eighteen years. Mm-hmm. That just came out uh, the end of last year, and um, it kind of just got me thinking as well. Like, I mean, is there constantly new forms of things getting created, like, or new organisms, or is it? Are we basically at the standard of like? Oh, do we know as much as? We think we, well, we certainly don't know as much. As uh, that's well, what I'm thinking. I mean, yeah. like a week. I I don't even think. I don't even know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when you start thinking like that, you get your brain becomes internalized yeah, somehow. You're trying to work the cogs together. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> everything starts to kind of uh, grind against each other because clearly we don't know. We not even scratch the surface of reality of what mm. we know, what we don't know. And this annoys me when people talk about what we know about things is what we know now. Clearly, if I were talking to me in the middle of the Victorian period, you know, and I was I was banging on about what I knew, yeah. uh, and you you he's, this guy's a scientist, an expert. Yeah, he must be right. And then you come here, and I'm banging about what I know, or somebody's talking about big bangs and mm. and blue web, and you know. That will be different in yeah. 100 years' time. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And we will look back on this and say, they were so primitive, those people. Do you know they actually believed in the Big Bang? How stupid is that? You know what I mean? <laughs> what, what, what was wrong with these, mind, these people's minds? You know, um, so you've got to always keep this in the background that we are only passing through a time phase of science mm-hmm. where we know what we, what we think we know and all this will change. And so this is why you shouldn't be too dogmatic about things because you know it's going to change. So how can you be dogmatic about it? Mm-hmm. How can you say the Big Bang, that's it? Yeah. You know, that is, we have absolute proof of that because I can guarantee you that when you're my age, possibly, uh, you know, another 50 years' time, 40, 30, whatever, yeah. uh, things will have changed and you will be amazed. But I always just say to my students when I retired, you know, so I'm dead jealous about you. You know, I'm so envious of you guys because, you know, you're going to live for another fifty years. And look what you're going to. I'm going. I'm dead in ten. You're going to live for fifty. What's going to happen? Wow. Yeah, I'm so jealous. I want to know. You know, yeah. I want to stay here and find out. I don't care about eating steaks. I just want to leave my mind and find out yeah. what happens. You know, just, I mean? just before, might be able to do that. Yeah, to be yeah maybe one day. <laughs> just just before to reiterate on Chris's point, and I'll try and put it across a bit better way. Yeah, um, probably would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because obviously I know what he was saying. Because it was a question I wanted to ask you. And, yeah, uh, go on. In a, it was basically what was it again yeah it was a study so there was a study about um, a new study that came forward I think it was was it octopus I think it was that's so, <laughs> yeah. so the, uh, the, uh, the theory that was obviously octopus yeah. came from the form of panspermia yeah. but what Chris was think, was trying to say what I got from him was that see if this form of panspermia is coming in from the stratosphere now are we seeing it so the, if this material is coming into the, onto the planet are we seeing life forms being created from that now yeah. 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 Well, um, by the way, my name was on that paper about oxy- octopuses. Yeah. Um, 
when you write a co-authored paper, you don't necessarily agree with everything on it. Yeah. Because I, I was only talking about microbial material, but it's there. It's been peer-reviewed. It's been very, um, you know, you shouldn't laugh at it. Read it. Take an interest. But I would have thought that it was more likely that maybe the genes of the octopus came in rather than the, the octopus, if anybody's saying that, you know what I'm saying. So anyway, um, what was I going to say? I've lost my thread now, as I often do. Um, About the possibility of that actually happening. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're. I, I, I mean, my mind is thinking in terms of microorganisms, small. Because if you were sending material through space, you would send genes or microbes. You wouldn't send elephants, like I said, even possibly octopuses, because, you know, but that doesn't mean that can't happen. Yeah. But I, w- I would think that the genes of the octopus or even a, com- a cell of an octopus, maybe. I'm, anyway, this is my own take on it. But, um, yeah, you could... Uh, you could send DNA, of course. Viruses could be... Uh, we know viruses are up there. Maybe viruses are bringing in. And Hoyle and Wickramasinghe suggested that new diseases like SARS may be coming from space, mm. you know? So new viruses or, or mutating viruses may be coming in. And then, obviously, there's the problems with how they can, you know, interfere with humans and animals. On But the, all these things are uh, explainable if you, if, you, if you go at it. Um... So maybe diseases are coming in, new new diseases. Um, all this is open to the possibility. Um, all we, all I can say is that I am pretty certain I've demonstrated, we've demonstrated, that life is coming in from outside. Yeah. Now again, you you've got to think outside the you've got a box. You've got to keep on thinking. One of the suggestions I've made is maybe this material life went out in prehistoric times and it's coming back. Right, it's just settling from wherever, mm. and maybe these organisms we're seeing are actually prehistoric microorganisms. Right, uh, that would explain they're not coming from space; they're Earth organisms, but at a, from a previous time. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, it yeah, would. Really kind good. of nice di- to, dinosaur microbes. Be nice to back. see um, the effects of like what their microbes would be like on other planets, how they've interacted. Yeah, and yeah. obviously that would take millions of years, and not to see any form of changes. Yeah. But that would be fascinating to see how. The, bi- the microbiomes of this earth is going to impact yeah. well, the future. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously one would assume, thinking about evolution or natural selection, that on every planet it'll be different because the conditions are so different that mm-hmm. it will... I mean, but there, there are obvious things. Like, for example, if you if you go to another planet, I think you will find organisms which look similar to you in many ways if they're, they're advanced to our... Or, you know, similar to our... There'll be many it, conditions that could affect that, couldn't Yeah, there? I mean, you're going to have to have sensory organism. You're, you're going to have to have something that detects light. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to have something like eyes. You're going to have to have... If you're as advanced as we are, you're going to have to build rockets. So you're going to have to have fingers and a poseable thumb. You can't really make a computer without an opposable thumb. Well, maybe you can, but it's going to be difficult. So you're going to get something similar to us. Obviously, it'll be different in terms of the conditions. Maybe they're picking up ultrasound or like, you know, uh, maybe the light is is different way. Obviously, maybe they're UV. The, so got I, was a, I was actually thinking, sorry, sorry to jump in, that maybe they're not, not even anything like us because obviously we perceive intelligence like for what we look like. Intelligence might not be like a yeah, of course, form yeah, of what we yeah, are. There could yeah. be just a sort of a uh, could be bacteria. A when we always when we always perceive yeah, we perceive intelligence. Yeah. We perceive intelligence yeah. of a body that moves yeah. around. It could but just be bacteria itself. You know the trouble. The trouble, Dan, <coughs> is that all these things are possible and wonderful, and and but you can't react to them without knowledge of how you're going to get there. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think the same way. I mean, last spring I was looking down in a pond in the garden at a tadpole and it's yeah. swimming. I thought, what does this tadpole know? You know what I mean? Here uh, I am. Here I am yeah. looking at this tadpole. What the hell? This pad- tadpole doesn't know about mobile phones yeah. and everything. <laughs> and there it is living. And, and how can you get your mind around this? You know, the, the, the obvious conjecture then is, well, maybe there's some big organism looking down on us and we're the microbes, we're yeah. the tadpoles. I keep thinking that. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, how, okay, show, show me, connect, it, connect that thought with some demonstration of what we're talking about. You can't. Can you? No. I think but, the only thing closest enough to that is the, the, the simulation theory where the advancement of video games has shown that's a good point. the collection of... The engineering through video games, how the how that's responding to like more like Earth, like really more. It's like a physical game now. Yeah. The the aspect of virtual reality, it's it's kind of shown us basically this could be a, a simulated yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course it could. I mean, uh, maybe, but but if it was simulated. Would I be choosing to spend my Sunday afternoon with you guys? I'd, I'd have a better simulation. I think, I think you would be. I think you would, <laughs> you would be. be. Well, I used to. I, I, I'll tell a little, slightly rude interjection here, maybe sexist, but uh, it could apply to men or women, or whatever variations you've got. But uh, many years ago, uh, there was a crusty old academic in Sheffield University, nice guy and everything, but uh, very dry and everything. And I suggested this in my young, youthful enthusiasm. Do you think it's all a dream? Do you think it's, we just, and um, this gorgeous young lady, student walked in and uh, she said, well, no, if it was a dream, do you think that girl would have clothes on at this moment? <laughs> and it could be a man, could be a man, or, a, or whatever, whatever shade of humanity you want. Um, so yeah, I mean, who's making this dream up, and why? If, if we're making up dreams, why do we make better ones? Well, here's something. I'll just to jump in. I'll not to go too much into it, but yeah. this this will be a little uh, bit of Zen philosophy that might make you question. We were just listening to this on the way down with Alan Watts, mm. and Alan Watts says like, if you were going to create a dream, you would create a dream where you ha- you could do everything. You could ride dinosaurs. You could have sex with dinosaurs. Yeah, you can wow. do anything imaginable. <laughs> anything imaginable that you want. Is that imaginable? Do. I don't think that's imaginable. <laughs> It is. It is in the dream realm. If you create it, oh, oh wow! Yeah, uh, trust us. Some of my lucid dreams. Yeah, yeah. You can definitely, okay, so you can definitely have sex okay. with dinosaurs. Yeah, wow. <laughs> no, but anyway, he said you. Would... <laughs> this is where this podcast goes, by the way. Yeah, yeah everywhere. He basically said. I'm what trying to get my mind around that one. Go on. He basically said what you do is you create a dream where you could you could have all infinite possibilities. Then he said eventually that would become boring. Yeah. And eventually you would create a dream that was more similar to ah. more challenging yeah. for your mind and yeah. stuff. And then yeah. he said eventually. You'd create a dream exactly where you are now. Yeah, where you didn't know you were so, in a dream. You didn't know what's come around the corner. So if you're if you're powerful. being tortured by the SS, that's not a good dream to me. But uh, I don't know. Again, wonderful. This is all conjecture. It's lovely stories. I, I, yeah. I listen. It's, oh, yeah. I mean, it's very intellectual. It's very nice. It's it's wonderful. It's like the butterfly I, one. That was you know, that's one of my favorite ones. Where I think it was, I'm not sure if it was Confucius who said. Um, I don't know if I'm the butterfly dreaming I'm a human or if I don't know if I'm a human dreaming I'm a butterfly. Because yeah. that's one yeah. of his dreams. He dreamt he was a butterfly. Yeah. And he didn't know at that moment yeah. if he was the butterfly dreaming I mean, the man. So. Uh, this is wonderful. It, it's it's great for having a pint with and it is, amongst your mates, you know. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful. But, you know, when as a, I don't mean as a scientist, as somebody who's boring I think, but the reality of a scientific you've got to bring it down to, yeah. re- to where we are we're sitting here that's solid although we know it's not solid in reality yeah. we're sitting here we're talking about problems that we and we have to keep it within the constraints of this 
this thing because if we don't the, it, it's totally unconstrained and we can have all of your wonderful ideas mm-hmm. but where's the demonstration of the reality of it mm-hmm. if, rea- if reality has no reality <laughs> then you're going to have all kinds of problems demonstrating reality you know, it's, it's just a circular argument isn't mm-hmm. it? so we and this is why a lot of scientists don't want to get involved with UFOs or things like that or um, what do you call it uh, you know ghosts and things um, paranormal phenomena because I've, I've taken interest in these over the years, and the problem is it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. You don't demonstrate anything, and you're left. First of all, you don't write the paper to get promotion, more money, but you're not. You're, it doesn't go anywhere. You're not left with any event, whereas most scientists want, obviously, to, to come up with a conclusion. And uh, maybe if they studied UFOs and paranormal things, they would get a better conclusion. But, you know, a lot of this... and. I used to say to my students, the, the amazing thing I think about the, our, our situation is that it's absolutely normal. When you wake up in the morning, the sun doesn't, the moon doesn't come up, the sun, you know, know. the grass doesn't turn blue. Everything happens in a very logical, you know, it has set like a way. Sort of a rule set. It has a rule set. And no matter what you do, you apparently can't change that. You can't change the way... In fact, it's almost so, like you were saying, about boredom. It's a, such a boring event living here with all its wonderful complexities. The reality is it never changes much, does it? It doesn't, you know, you, you, in a world where you might be thinking of everything, you might expect some kind of variation. One day the sun doesn't come up. Um, who knows? Um, so these things are wonderful and they, they're great, but you've got to... St- go somewhere and, and come up with some realities, haven't you? Apparent, perceived realities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, see, you see where we're going. Yeah. If we can't talk about reality, we talk about perceived reality. And if we, if we talk about what we don't know in science, we can't talk about, you know. I mean, we do know that copper sulfate exists, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a, an argument. <laughs> but um, if you start thinking about the, the fringes of what we might know or what we might know, you don't get anywhere in proving it yeah we've yeah. got to use with our limited um minds and our limited capability and our limited um tools to actually die diagnose yeah this whole essence of being yeah. like, we're like cavemen using like yeah. tools to perform brain yeah. surgery and really. the 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 important thing and yeah you know a lot of let's say non-science science-based educated people come into these wonderful stories and everything but the reality science that we do works we can put a man on the moon you know what i mean this is not uh, mumbo jumbo this is reality we know how to send a an object going around and you know taking these photographs and bring it back and this is wonderful so the complexity about what what we really know is is amazing let alone what we don't know <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> it is, like, it is a, <laughs> you know what we can do i mean i i went into a um a factory where they were making microchips and I was just gobsmacked I mean the equipment that makes the microchips for a start is so unbelievable how they make and somebody's got to think this up and use scientific principles yeah. to make the microchip for your phone to work you don't know how the hell it works and I don't mm-hmm. and um, we take it all for granted and everything I mean even on a mundane level this program on the TV about making crisps you know where a computer sends a jet of air to kick out the bad crisp you know <laughs> and there's thousands of these crisps on a belt and the bad one is being ejected out a camera's picking it out a waft of air jet and i'm looking at this and then it says something like 
20 million bags of crisps are consumed every day. You know, my mind, who's eating all the crisps? Yeah. So, me, me. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, so, you know, science is, uh, is amazing. You don't have to listen to Brian Cox telling you about billions and billions of stars. Even yeah. ejecting a, a bad crisp from a conveyor belt is pretty amazing. It is, science though, and engineering. Well, I think you would also know that as well, being come from a biological perspective where you're obviously having the mic... Uh, the organisms in front of you and you're sort of like you said you've got your um, what's the correct name for the where you actually look at the organisms again well the microscope microscope yeah, yeah. I couldn't think that yeah, yeah sure yeah. Uh, but I you've actually all the got time. the microscope <laughs> and uh, you're looking at these organisms you're going to be looking at these and you, the wonder of even just on that intricate detail like you're saying of just yeah. looking at them organisms and questioning like like it said I was going out back in the woo bit but like are they intelligent are they conscious do they aware of me am I aware yeah, of me yeah, what am yeah. I and things like yeah, that yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it is I think it is good to sort of put your mind in them trail of thoughts because it really does make you sort of it actually gives it makes you, it gives you a lot of gratitude for what you're in yeah. and what and, and, the, and obviously you will know you will understand this of like how much how much design has gone into them organisms from a biological level you, you can question that in yourself and think like how much design has actually gone into creating this or what this is how much effort has gone to, yeah, well, to create the magnitude of whatever we're in yeah well in terms of organisms of course the standard theory is there's no design it's just natural selection basically yeah, yeah. the fittest survived the best fitted yeah. to an environment survive um yeah i i mean i think again because it was my 69th birthday yesterday and I've retired. I'm oh, getting, I'm getting, thank you. I, I, I was fishing for that one. There we are, yeah. We well, brought you a present. Well, have you, and uh, yeah, okay. Uh, you, here's something for me earlier. Here's something, yes. Uh, you want to re round back where you actually give me the present. But okay, I'm getting towards the end of my existence. And um, it's very interesting looking back. And it answers a lot of problem questions about science and things that you don't think about when you're a young scientist. For example, when I was doing science in 1960, well, I mean, obviously, I went, I started in doing science in 1965. Let's take A levels or O levels as my starting point mm -hmm. way back then. Um, so that's simple science at school. Um, and then I went through university, PhD, etc., etc. 42 years of research and so on. And um, but when I look back, when I did my degree in '68, um, Charles Darwin could have done the same degree. It was all, there was almost no change between 1860 and 1960, 70. You know what I mean? There was obviously new developments in cell biology. We knew about DNA from Watson and Crick in the 50s, but fundamentally. I was just doing the same kind of biology as Darwin would have done, or anybody of that period, just a bit more sophisticated. And then, of course, in the 80s, we got this molecular explosion. And I, in 1968, I, no one, including myself, could, could conceive of this. I mean, we were identifying bacteria on the basis of their looks, their, their morphology. We used to have a, a book called the Berge Manual, mm -hmm. which is like a Bible. It was brilliant how it worked. So if I found you as an organism, right, you'd start off on page one, it would say, right, number of appendages, four, go to six. Page six would have animals on because you've got four appendages, right? Mm -hmm. And then it'd go, you know, something like, where's glasses? Go to page eight, humans. Do you know what I mean? So you'd go breaking it down all the way down through this book to the end product, and it would say... Um, Escherichia coli, you found the organism. Now, of course, we just take this organism and we do its 
DNA, we, we uh, mm-hmm. use molecular approaches and we identify it as the organism. So this is why I say young scientists don't bother with the organisms, looking at the organisms anymore, because they can get the DNA and find out what it is without doing that laborious graft. process. Yeah. And uh, it, it creates problems in itself. I mean, one of the problems it creates is that when people find something, say that, say you find a bacillus, a new organism called bacillus. In, in my youth, you'd go along and it would be one of, say, five species on the planet. Now, because of molecular approaches, you've got zillions of these bacilli, and each one of them is only minutely different from the other. And a lot of people, when they find them, name them after where they found them. So if you find it in Barnsley, you call it Bacillus barnsleyensis. <laughs> If you find it in Chicago, it's Bacillus chicagiensis. But fundamentally, it's the same organism as it was. It's mm-hmm. just broken down to a minute yeah. thing. Well, it's basically like every time we find a human being, we call it a different name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know. Or places as well. Something else I was going to say to you before as well, when you mentioned you brought up uh, Darwin's, Darwin as well. Um, I was going to actually ask you, how does panspermia fit into the model of Darwin's theory? Uh, I'm well, sorry, do you think it does? Or, well, first or of all... Or, uh, and what do you think about First Darwin's of all, if you theory? read my website, I don't believe that it is Darwin's theory. Yeah, right. I've read it, don't worry. Pat- Patrick <laughs> Matthew came up with natural selection 30 years before. And you, everyone out there should start reading this. Darwin did a great job. He wrote the last best um, <clears throat> review on Victorian ideas on uh, evolution. None of his ideas I would, would, would maintain in... in on the origin of species are novel to him. So he wasn't this great genius. What he did was he got all the information, he put it into a fantastic book, fantastically um, changed the world, if you know what I mean. Um, but he did not come up with these ideas himself. So we've, we need a different view of Darwin. The view of Darwin is this great genius who, de novo, from nowhere, came up with this idea is wrong. Patrick Matthew and Charles Wells, before him, came up with these ideas. And he, so it's not... It, Okay, it's Darwin's theory in the sense that it's his... Uh, Overarching sort of thing. Uh, yeah, coming together. But even Darwin himself admitted that Patrick Matthew beat him to the idea of natural selection. And these nuances are left out. And that, yeah. this annoys me, you know. Mm. That goes for many areas as well. Obviously. I mean, you, to some extent, you can only summarise things. You can't go into all the complexities of everything. Otherwise, mm. you wouldn't get very far. The lectures would go on ad, you know, ad infinitum. But... To say that Darwin came up with the idea of natural selection, he's actually calling Darwin a liar because Darwin clearly says, I did not come up with the idea of natural selection. But historians and the likes of, um, what do you call him? I've forgotten his name. I often try to. Um, (laughs) uh, Anyway, evolutionists, um, just ignore the history, the reality, the truth. Why tell lies about Darwin? Why should you not be told off for telling lies about Darwin and then mm. be told off for telling lies about creationism? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, that's just my little advert for my um, how, how do you, my ideas. So how do you... How does, well, it fits in beautifully yeah, because fits, yeah. there's, no, there's, no, there's no problem with it. Um, <clears throat> so let me summarise <coughs> what... <coughs> excuse me, frogging me fruit. Okay. Um, let me summarise what's happening here. You've got a planet, a rocky planet. It's hot. Uh, there's no life on it. It's cooling down. All the time, it's been surrounded by clouds of organisms from the cosmos. These can't live, obviously, in a really hot environment. There's no atmosphere. It goes through a progression of physical changes, right? So it cools. 
it gets an atmosphere, changes the atmosphere. So at some point, the, one of these organisms, or a proto-organism, an organism before the organisms, mm. can take hold and go. Now, you've probably heard the theory of doubling, the idea that if you, yeah. if you double numbers, they become massive very quickly. There's an old story about um, an e Egyptian slave who saves the pharaoh's wife or something. And the pharaoh says to him, you can have anything in my kingdom. And the pharaoh's thinking uh, he's going to go for all the gold. And, you know. So the, the slave, being very intelligent, <laughs> says, well, bring me a chessboard and put one grain of rice on or wheat on this one and double it every chessboard, every, every square. Now, if you do that, the number that you end up with is phenomenal. He's got all the rice in the world. You know, and you can't even think, until you do the, the, the math, as they say, until you do the calculation, you think one, two, four, eight. It's not going to get very far, but believe me, at the end, it's a massive amount. So this theory of doubling means that one organism, when it hits the earth and the conditions are just right, if it's a bacterium, for example, it replicates every 20 minutes. So within weeks, months, the whole of the, the, whole of the earth will be covered in that organism. But remember, there's other organisms coming in, so they're going to compete. They're going to fight over the... Obviously, if an organism starts killing it, that organism will not take over the planet. So you're getting competition. Mm. You're getting competition brought in, and that organism might have covered the Earth, and then another organism comes in, and you get natural selection. You get the, the most fitted organism surviving. Natural selection. Survival of the most fitted. Best fitted. <clears throat> so the whole thing's in continual flux. It's changing. Now, once you get the organisms with different genomes, and then you start getting evolution, you get changes, you get breeding, you've got to invent sex and all this. And yeah. the whole of natural selection, evolution takes off, and here we are. Mm -hmm. So, um, and not only here we are, but this is continuing by information from space all the time. So... We, we're not limited to that information that we've started with. We can get information from elsewhere all the time. Yeah. So it becomes more complicated, and and it becomes open to the cosmos. As I say, for biologists for the last, say, 200 years, have been restricted to this planet. You know, astronomers have been out there, but biologists have been... I always give the analogy of the Eden Project, you know. Mm. The biologists of today, and um, um, my generation, thought of the Earth as like a greenhouse. <laughs> you know, it's only recently that people have been talking about, you know, the death of the dinosaurs from from cosmic events. Yeah. You know, w when I was a student, nobody said the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid or a comet or whatever hits the, the planet. So there's a, a subtle change now. We are beginning to understand that we're not the Eden Project. We're not a greenhouse. Mm. in space <laughs> we're open both outgoing and incoming to space mm -hmm. uh, and that in the near future will have a completely different change in mindset of, of, of biologists I always say that I mean I don't want to be morbid I sound like I'm in a I'm having a go but let's <laughs> let's let's be realistic human beings don't usually last uh, beyond a certain period so I before I die, I would like my idea to be accepted, right? That life is coming from space, and I would like, on my deathbed, to begin a compendium of like thousands of these organisms. It starts off with my organisms, and then it goes through. So people have found them, 
I'll talk about this in a minute, by the way. People have found new ones, and I can look at this and say, wow, look at that. You know, mm. this is a reality, and there's all these coming in. Now, I want to go into a couple of questions about this. Um, first of all, I need to mention that we've done sampling, not only in this country, we've sampled above Iceland in the Aurora Borealis, we've sampled above uh, the Wyoming grasslands, we've gone over the Death Valley where there's deserts, we've gone over Bonneville salt flats where there's salt, and we've sampled, we found organisms. So they're not just restricted to Sheffield or whatever, they're, we've found them in different parts of yep. the world. Um, I'll tell you a little story. No, but I, mean, I won't tell you that one because it might cause problems. Anyway, move on. Uh, got to, I've got to edit myself a little bit because I can, I can go on. Now, one of the problems people say to me is, um, first of all, if this were true, it would be in nature. Why isn't it? In fact, in sometimes we've had to publish in journals. There are low, low, so-called lowly journals. We have this idea in science that information is not important. It's where you publish the information. Yeah. Impact events and all impact and, and all this, I call it crap, right? All you need to do in science is publish it somewhere. There's no good, as far as I'm concerned, there's no good science or bad science or good journals or bad journals. It's information. Definitely. And you need to get this out like I'm doing here. Now, the question is, so people say to me, well, if this were true, you'd be in, you'd be in nature. People, scientists would have accepted it. And my problem is, I've done all this, we've done all this work, I keep saying I, but we've done all this work, and uh, nobody's taking it seriously. Not only that, they're not, as far as I know, they're not relating to it. So NASA hasn't come along and said, we've repeated your experiments, it's absolute crap. Nobody's doing anything. Now you would think, wouldn't you, if, I, if, a, if a guy is sitting here, and he's got these papers and this information on the website, pictures. Somebody would interact and say, I'm going to spend some time looking at this and call him an idiot or, or say he's right. Mm. You might get some YouTube comments saying that soon. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, sure I'm, sure I'll get, uh, I'm sure I'll get plenty of, what do you call them? What do you call the... When Pe the people who haven't done 30, 40 years of biology, mate. Yeah, yeah, the, well, the, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, when I'm, I'm not computer... I'm not modern in the sense of... Uh, what do you call it? To Facebook and all this kind of stuff. I don't, but I, I, my, my daughter, when this first came out, she said, Dad, she phoned me, Dad, have you seen what they're, they're saying about you on, on the internet? You're stupid. You're an idiot. You're doing it, you're doing it for money. So I just had a look just to see what they were saying. And I noticed that there was these pictures of Rottweilers come along, don't they? Rottweilers, the dogs, you know, and they're going to oh, say yeah, something yeah. really nasty about what you're doing, you know. Yeah, so is. all this is, you know, somebody once said the only interesting thing about, one of these um, internet in, uh, kind of things is how how long it take, takes for the F word to appear. You know, mm. usually the F word appears in within five interactions, doesn't it? Somebody's, and you know, you start off with a wonderful, intelligent argument, and then somebody comes in, don't they, mm -hmm. yeah. and says, "F, yeah. the guy's an idiot. Yeah. The guy doesn't know anything." Yeah. And then you get some wonderful <laughs> things. Then people telling you things like, "Well, you know." Gravity could do this, and you think, well, how does this? Uh, as this, how many baths has this guy had to think about this? You know what I mean? How many baths? Yeah. Like probably never been in a bath. He's probably never been in a bath. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Well, his photo it? looks like a dog anyway, so he's, <laughs> perhaps we've got dogs on the internet. I don't know. I'm gonna next time I have a um, debate with somebody, I'm gonna actually say to them, how many baths do you have? Yeah, yeah this <laughs> is a this is a ten bath problem, mate. <laughs> yeah, get yourself twenty minute bath. You know, I always say if if showers had been invented before baths, we wouldn't be sitting here doing this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a bath is the place to think you can't think in a shower can yeah. you? it's 
too active, it's too dynamic. You've got to be laid. That's why all these scientists don't accept it because they're all having showers. Exactly. <laughs> they, yeah, we need more baths. Uh, you know, we need universities to have more oh, bathrooms yeah. and more baths, and we need to insist that they have one bath a day, a day to think about things. I mean, yeah. you think about what you do in a bath. You don't lay there actively feeling dynamic and you want to go for a run or something. Yeah. You're laying there thinking. Mm-hmm. And all the thoughts are going in. And if you turn the tap back on and get some nice warm water, you can stay in there for hours and hours mm-hmm. thinking. I find actually, oh, I, I find walking me as well. In yeah, the, in that's the, very interesting. Walking is very good. There's, there's lots yeah. of evidence that movement um, increases your thought yeah. thinking capacity. There's a great, Somebody, book, great book on that called Spark. Is that really? About, yeah. I don't know. I've read a, a paper once where this guy had taken some major discoveries and found that often people were in movement when they did it. Not necessarily walking, they could be on a train and air, but there's move, there's something going on yeah. in their periphery. Mm. And this apparently sparks off your thought processor, makes it more... I've actually mm. heard it argued as well, and argued really well, that, um, that the brain is only really used for movement, the dynamics of movement. Mm. Oh, it was yeah. created by movement. Well, the complexity yeah, the of the human brain was the, created by movement. Mm. I think that's what it is. The idea of the C-squared, it... Um, it has a brain, it moves to its location where it'll steer for the rest of its life, and it'll use its brain for energy, it'll eat its own brain, because it ceases to need it anymore. Well, that's what so. I'm doing, I'm obviously at that stage where my brain's been consumed. Um, a lot of people on this website might think so, you know. Yeah, so you get in, this is the modern world, you know, we're full of all this negative information, negative thinking. You know, science is very simple. It's all about just people like me do come up with ideas and you test them, mm-hmm. and you either they're either right or wrong. I don't care a proverbial if somebody can prove I'm wrong. You know, I, I, I could. Quite, you can't I, even want it to really. I, I yeah, want them either way. I want somebody to tell me because I can't see the logic in it. You know, the famous Sherlock Holmes saying, you know, um, paraphrase it. You know, if um, I've forgotten how to paraphrase it. If, um, if the information says, no, I can't even, I've forgotten that part of it, but there's a statement by Sherlock Holmes, basically, that says that if the information doesn't point the way you want it to go, it is an, there's an alternative, yeah. and the alternative must be accepted. So um, I don't care a, a proverbial whether people think I'm stupid or not. All I say to them is very simple. You tell me what the alternative to what I'm saying is. Yeah. Mm. Simple. When you were seeing me uh, before, I think you mentioned this, I'm sure you mentioned this earlier on in the podcast, I was trying to remember, yep. but you were talking about uh, the aspect of, like, I think you said, I'm not sure if you used this word, but you, it was what I got from you, like a cultural memory of this happening uh, previously on the planet, because I think it was, um, is it Chandra's book with Robert Bevald, where they where they they did a book together yeah. about panspermia. In, and I think from a religion, yeah, more from a Buddhist kind of. Yeah, no, no, Robert Vivald stated that uh, the knowledge of panspermia was is actually there's evidence that previous civilizations on the planet oh, yeah. actually had had some sort of cultural memory yeah. of this actually happening. Sure. Yeah. Well, in the same way, if you watch the program Ancient Aliens, yeah. they're talking about all kind of cultural references to things, uh, you know, gods coming from the skies and so on. The, the burning bush was a rocket. Yeah. You know, you can you can have all these wonderful stories, and they're very very intelligent, and they may be right. Who knows? You can't just dismiss them because they're very interesting ideas. Um, yeah, Chandra is a great scientist, but he's, he's slightly more religious. You know, he's a Buddhist. He's, he's, well, he's slightly more in, tu- in tune with the um, ethereal cosmos than I am. I think yeah, Chandra actually was interesting about the theory of that, what I said about the cultural memory. Chandra mm. actually uh, wasn't too sure about it. 
Mm. in the book if I can remember quite rightly it was actually Rob Beveld who was bringing that forward he mm. brought the side of the yeah. book because they yeah. wrote a book together and mm. Chandra's half of the book was yeah. more based on the, the panspermia side of things the yeah. scientific yeah, of course, side yeah. and then I mean, uh, yeah. you've got to remember was, Chandra's a great mind he's a, he's a poet he's a mathematician he's done all this he's, you know, he's, a, he's a major and he's been treated like rubbish by this the scientific community he's been denied a fellowship of the Royal Society can you believe that I mean you know I've seen people who are very relatively inferior get fellowships in the Royal Society. Yeah. He's been denied it. It's a bit like electing the Pope. If somebody blackballs you, apparently, you don't get elected. So they've they blackballed him because of his ideas on panspermia. Similarly, uh, Fred Hoyle should have got a Nobel Prize, but they blackballed him mm. for ideas on panspermia and, mm. and other things. So, you know, the scientific community is very conservative. It will attack people. You know, new ideas are attacked or ignored, which is even worse. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, with my work, I used to give lectures at the University of Sheffield, and the students, t it's a wonderful story, the students turned up in masses to listen to me and were very encouraged. But nearly, almost none of the established scientists turned out. They were happy to say it was crap. They were happy to dismiss it. But nobody wanted to come and hear why it, or tell me why it was crap. Yeah. Whereas the younger students, and this is great for the future, they were there and they were asking questions like you are and they were engaging with the idea. There's too much uniformity in science. There's too many scientists these days who are careerists, they're journeymen, they're doing things, they're doing, I mean, they're doing science on a certain level extremely well, but they won't break out because mm -hmm. they know their career's there, they know that their promotion to a fellowship of science. If you break out of that, I mean, I, let's, let's take, I've mentioned Brian Cox a couple of times, Brian Cox is a physicist, astronomer. You know, his programs are wonderful. They're incredibly well presented. But to my mind, he never breaks out. He's, he's giving the audience what they want, a wonderful picture of everything wonderfully enclosed and known about. Mm -hmm. And you can go to bed thinking that we know all about the what's happening. And, uh, you know, I would like him or others, myself, to come in and say, Look, this is not so smooth and wonderful. Yeah. Mm. Maybe people aren't ready for it. Don't, they always say that you know people aren't intelligent enough to know all that, but this is nonsense. So there's too much careerism in science these days, and uh, the whole thing is designed around that. Rather than, and I, again, I go back to when I was younger, every department had a nutty professor. I mean, I've been described as this. <laughs> every department in the universe had a nutty professor. You don't get nutty professors anymore. Nutty professors have been selected out by natural selection mm. because you can't be a nutty professor and think outside the box and worry about getting grants and worrying about your promotion. That is antithesis to being a nutty professor. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've heard it said in, when I was in my department in molecular biology and biotechnology by some people in Sheffield University, that I should be sacked. And why I should be sacked was I was coming up with these ideas that would scare people away from giving money to the University of Sheffield. That's the problem, isn't there's it? A nutter, mm -hmm. There's a nutter in this department. He's saying life comes from space. Why would anybody want to give grants to a person working on cancer research? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And this is a reality. It's not just a myth. There are people out there who don't like these new ideas and they think that... Um, they should be called. And the Royal Society itself has said that this is a problem with, with modern science. There's not enough people thinking outside the box because it's not in your it's not in your interests anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, because you want to get on, you want to get all these grants, you want to build up a big group, 
If you're talking about life insurance, I mean, we, we wouldn't, I mentioned before, we, we applied for grants, but we never got grants. Because why would you give grants to a nutty idea when you can give it to somebody who's mainstream? You know, mm, yeah. you know that's going to work. Why give it to... So this is a fundamental problem that's changed since I was a, a lad. You know, science is far too restricted, far too conservative. It needs for money to be given to people who are thinking outside the box mm -hmm. instead of just following the same old... And we get obscenities. You, you won't know about this, but when I started in science... You were given a lot of time to think and develop your ideas and so on. You got tenure or you got your job almost guaranteed, you know. And a lot of people abused this. There was wasters about, dead wood yeah. as they called them, you know. Any system, you're going to get waste. Uh, but nowadays in universities, when you're appointed as a young lecturer, if you don't get a massive grant and write so many massive papers in massive journals, you're sacked within three years. That is obscene. Mm. And nobody's commenting. Nobody's t telling anybody about this, you know. The heads of departments aren't saying it. Yeah. The vice chancellors aren't saying it. Because they're getting the money. They're happy with the system. Yeah. It's all based around money, income generation. Mm. And it's working. But in terms of, out, uh, you know, paradigm shift, you've heard this concept of a paradigm shift. Yeah. A paradigm is what we generally know now. A mm. paradigm shift is like what I'm talking about is a paradigm shift. Yeah, of course. Paradigm shifts will become less and less because you haven't got the time or the inclination or the to, to develop paradigm shifts because you know that if you come up with an unusual idea, your career's bust. Yeah. Now, how how ridiculous is this that science is based on this? You know, it's like it's like it's scary, really. It's very scary. It's very, very scary. It means that science and uh, the critics of my idea, of course, can say, well. You know, the United Kingdom has published five five million papers in top quality journals, yeah. and you're telling me science is going wrong. You know what I mean? We've got more work. We've got this. We've got this idea. We've got yeah, fine. Within that narrow constraint of the paradigm, everything's wonderful. And but where's the new ideas coming? Yeah, exactly, it's the exploration of yeah. the new most, ideas. Which most is new ideas, yeah. Most new ideas come from nutters like myself, people yeah. <laughs> who are who are not mainstream thinkers. They're almost. They're eccentrics. Um, mm. They're almost kind of programmed to think differently. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm i not being immodest because I think it might be considered a, a problem, but I don't think in the way that most scientists think. That's, People, that's good, though. But, uh, it's good, but, it's, uh, but I don't think it's something you learn. I, think, I actually think it's just certain t types of personalities. And if you look at a lot of, I'm not calling myself a great scientist, but you look at great, great thinkers, they're often very strange personalities. Maybe they've got mild autism or something it's else. They're not, the messages, they're, not, yeah, they're not your regular, you know, professor who's going to run a head of department and get a lot of money. And so these are... I, I, I love what you're saying there because I think it's about the ability to, like you said, some look back in time and you see all these people who's, who's invented... Uh, these amazing things and they also had these crazy part of like crazy elements to their character sort yeah, of say yeah. but I think that's just like a part of them being able to like because culturally like like you said before if you if you're an academic and you just you're sticking to these lines you're not going to be able to see the the this new bit of information here this new bit yeah. of information here you're just going to yeah. stick in these linear lines but like um, if you start sort of um like, see, you have a, a, great, a great mind who just has this little... It only has to be a shift of ability to be able yeah. to shift the mind and, yeah. and see a different lens yeah. of reality. Well, That's when you do not, start... As you know stuff. from my website, I've done a lot of work on the history of penicillin. Alexander Fleming, Florian Chain and all this. 
Now, it's very interesting when you look at uh, Fleming's characteristics, personality, and compare them with Flory. So Fleming discovers penicillin, Flory develops it as a drug, as an antibiotic, right, with with his, his group. And you've got two different personalities here, and it's wonderful. You've got Fleming, who's a dilettante. He works hard at what he's doing, but he messes about. And he's the kind of person who will see strange phenomena and react to them. Flory's more of a, a scientist, as it were. He can take Fleming's ideas, which Fleming can't develop, because he's a developer rather than a seer. And I often think Flory, the famous penicillin plate, Flory would never have seen the phenomenon because he's not tuned into phenomena. He's not tuned into that lifestyle of thinking that way. He's tuned into a, li- a thinking of let's develop it systematically. Mm. Wonderful. Together they do the job. But either of them wouldn't do the job independently because they haven't got that way of thinking. Mm. I mean, head of department once, once said to me, you're a fool to yourself, Milton. What he meant by that was, you know, if you if you towed the line more, you'd end up like I am, a professor. You'd be earning more money than you are, you know, and everybody would be, you know, and you'd be writing papers in Nature and so on and so forth. That's what I wanted uh, to ask you. Like, how much has the establishment affected your message? Um, well, again... If you go down these, you get a little. It starts sounding like you're conspiratorial, or you're, you know, you've been persecuted. Oh, I mean, this is the kind of this is the Galileo phenomenon. Yeah. Let's say I've had a lot of trouble from the standard university, um, and I I don't think this was limited to Sheffield. It would have happened in all universities, but I got a lot of trouble. There was a point where I thought I, w- I might even have a nervous breakdown or something like oh. that. Because I got a lot of trouble from the university, from my colleagues, some some of my colleagues, obviously not all of them, and some of the general system. Mm. So, you know, these things happen, and they're bound to happen in this system because you can't, the system does not allow for anybody to come up with a daft idea. You know, mm-hmm. obviously well thought out daft idea, because it's the inbuilt thing about this system is it, it weeds out new approaches to things. And um, it runs throughout all education. Let me give you another example. I was terrible at maths when I was a kid. Uh, in those days, you could go into biology and be terrible at maths and get a, a PhD in biology, and you could end up like me. I'm still terrible at maths, by the way. I think the ability to do maths has something to do with inheritance or whatever. Uh, I am absolutely still frightened of mathematics, and... Um, I am bad at maths, and I, be, I am where I am. I follow the Royal Astronomical Society, 42-year, written ex, ex scientific papers. It, nowadays, the establishment says everybody should be good at maths because that's science, right? Mm. So these biologists, young biology students, are weeded out if they're bad at maths. They're given more mathematics to do in their degree, and if they're bad at maths, they're weeded out. So you're, you're basically throwing away a whole group of biologists who have a different mindset to another group of biologists. These are analytical biologists. Mm-hmm. You're taking the analytical biologists who are good at maths, and, you're, and that's science. The ones who are bad at maths, like myself, might be regarded as more intuitive biologists, mm-hmm. right? Like, like Fleming. It's something intuitive as, as well as scientific almost artistic, but you're throwing those out of the bath because you believe science is this type of personality. Mm -hmm. So this is why I worry about science. It's not a broad church anymore. It's not um, 
like going back into the Victorian period where people, you know, they didn't call themselves scientists. They called themselves natural philosophers. Yeah. You know, because they were, they, they were just interested in it. And that's what people use, though. The people use Pythagoras' um, understanding of mathematics in the universe and adapted it to their theories. Yeah. But it sounds like what's happening now is that other people's ideas and philosophies and other alternative ways of looking at life is starting to get, like, dissected out, as you sort of said. Yeah, yeah. Sort it's, of said. Uh, it's, it's a form of natural selection. We're heading in this one direction. Yeah, it's a form of natural selection that's sending it in one direction. And there's the peripheral discoveries are not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously they may happen for somebody who, who gets established and older. So, you know, if you've got an established career and you're 50 or 60, then you might start thinking, well, I've had enough of this boring grant game. I'm going to do something different. Yeah. You know, I'm going to start thinking, or I've had an idea. I don't care a proverbial about my career because I've, I've done it. Mm. So you might be restricting idea, off-the-wall ideas to people who, who are established rather than the younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, again, you're limiting the number of people who are having the freedom. Um, what you should do, I suppose, is give grants to somebody and say, yeah, do something with that. But that doesn't sound very uh, organized, does it? You know what I mean? When you think about it... should this, both happen, though. It should be yeah, both happen. I mean, when I... Again, I'm, I'm an old duffer, right? When I started in science... Um, People were given a small amount of money to do science, and you could do it. You could, I could be a biologist on a few hundred quid a year. Then we got this idea of big groups and big money going for grants. In, in, when I started, if you got a grant, it was icing on the cake. You got a bit more money. Now, I mean, the grant is essential. So that means that you can't relax and do things uh, just gently. You have to be thrusting all the time there are young guys now i know a a young scientist who was described by a colleague of mine as the best phd student he'd ever known brilliant einstein he went to the university of edinburgh and he was so much put under this pressure for grants and writing papers he left and became a a patent agent he's now working privately and he's a multi-millionaire so he's done extremely well but he was thrown out of university because of the pressure. You cannot develop new ideas under that kind of pressure. You can develop new ideas within what you're you're looking for, what you know about. You can make what you know about brilliant, but you can't develop what you don't know about. So that is where the problem arises. And, um, you know, uh, we need more nutty professors. Every department should have a nutty professor. They They should be educated as nutty professors yeah. and then put one in each department and said right get on with it because the problem is you have a finite amount of money the, the other mm. problem with with modern scientists or modern um administrators is they think you can um come up with the answer to any problem by directing it in a formal way right so the classic one was nixon we're going to cure cancer no. throws billions at cancer now, I guarantee that the cure or the, the knowledge of cancer will come from somebody doing something completely different. A guy who's looking at spider's legs will discover the cause of cancer, if you see what I mean. Totally, I mean, that's an extreme well, example. Did you, what was the, the, did you see, actually, this is in relation to the conversation of panspermia, actually. There was, a, I'm not sure if you've seen this article, it was very recent about mm-hmm. the, uh, there was an asteroid that came to the planet. Oh, yes, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. It, it looked was, like a, uh, uh, some kind of 
Craft, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 not one. not that one. Not that's that's the one that you're referring that to. That you can't pronounce. Yeah. More and more. Yeah, I can't but, pronounce. But the uh, the one that I'm referring to is it's uh, we should I'll probably try and put this in the show notes. But it was an asteroid came to the planet, and a lot of credible people who I follow they sh- they all shared it as well and validated. Mm. Yeah. And uh, but basically, it was uh, an asteroid that came to the planet, and the supposedly some sort of I I I'm not I'm a, I'm stupid, so I don't really no, understand no, it. No, come on, come. But there's like some sort of um microbes on that that can actually they've actually found that has cancer killing properties wow I'll just look into um, that I kind of get that obviously mm. I was going to go on my phone but it's yeah, ignorant yeah. but there's, a, there's yeah. a new article about that I should yeah. send you it have a look at it as yeah, well yeah fantastic so um, bung that in show notes as well really Definitely. fascinating what these administrators and these money orientated science don't science, they don't I mean I, I've done a lot of work on the history of philosophy of science written papers on this and um what they don't understand is the concept of serendipity. You know about this, chance. Mm-hmm. Chance plays an amazing role in scientific discoveries. If you look at uh, many scientific discoveries, they're done by chance. Fle- Fleming's is a good example of this. But, you know, to do something by chance, you've got to be working in, in an area. You, you know, mm-hmm. you can't have, I don't know, you can't have a, a, a prominent footballer discovering penicillin because he's not, you know, like you can't have Fleming scoring goals because he's not on the same pitch. You've got to have somebody working in these fields who can spot serendipity or are open to serendipity. But they're channeling everything into this kind of complex, single-line thinking that serendipity doesn't... I mean, I say to my, used to say to my students, if you're doing an experiment, leave one open to the air to see what chance does. And, but always look at it. You, serendipity, you have to look at it and you can't just leave it. Okay, I'm going to discover penicillin. Yeah, yeah. You've, got to be, you've got to think about it. And if you do that, chance, serendipity, whatever it is that runs the cosmos, will give you a leg up. And many discoveries have been done like Now that is anathema to the tunneled-minded scientist because yeah. if you want to cure cancer, what you do is you throw money at it and you get the best experts and you build a, a wonderful institute next to the... Um, next to King's Cross Station, you know, pump all the money and you have beautiful, you have fantastic corridors and you have coffee rooms and you bring scientists together okay. and, you, and you're going to, no, you're not. You're going to have a guy working in a little remote laboratory on something else pops up with the idea and he's, he's got about 30, you know, 30 quid to work with. That's how, that's how history tells us things happen, mm-hmm. but nobody's listening because of this mindset that we've got. Yeah. So, you know, on my website, I mean, I am a, naturally a controversial person. I don't mean that in any kind of bragging sort of way, or I don't know why you would call it bragging. My wife thinks I'm, you know, why would you be controversial? But I think whether my upbringing, my policy, my, my kind of what I've seen in the world makes me controversial. So if you look at my website, I'm saying Darwin did not discover natural selection. Yeah. I'm saying cancer's caused by bacteria. You know, and I've, I put a lot of material down there ex- explaining this. I'm saying that life comes from space. You know, mm. how much more trouble can I cause? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm saying, I'm telling you, maybe the Big Bang. You know, I am naturally um, a controversial person. Mm. And I don't, my wife thinks I just do it for effect, you know. Yeah. To impress the, chi- <laughs> impress no, I think, the chicks I, I haven't mean, got, I mean, you know. To me, to me, I mean, what I'm seeing from you is, is that it's just a case of that, you are just doing what a real scientist should be doing. You just you're just asking the questions. What more can yeah. you do than ask the questions? Ah, but don't get carried away. The other scientists are doing what science. They're asking questions, but often they're doing it within the the constraints of 
of, of things. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's a brilliant science. I'm, 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 I'm a, a crap science in terms of what I've published. You know, you compare it with my colleagues, what they've published in Nature and so on, and the grants they've got. You know, I'm, I'm non-existent. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so if you're looking at that, that's wonderful. And and the the person who's promoting that view of science can can argue the case. It's wonderful. Look at that. Look at the progress we're making. We are making progress in that. Obviously, every every year things develop, but a lot of the extremes are being missed because that's being weeded out of the system, and uh, that's what I, I worry about. But I don't need to worry about it because it's not my problem. <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, what problem? Call it nostalgia. Call it nostalgia. Maybe the one struggling to find the mad scientists. Yeah, exactly. You guys, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you the guys, you have. guys are living off mad scientists. You realise? You're, <laughs> you're looking. You're, you're, you know, seeking out nutters. We um, don't have the nutters. We don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. You know, you don't make you don't make a potential living out. Your parasites on the nutters. Uh, <laughs> I think we all need a little bit of nuttiness in, inside of ourselves. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I I have had the most wonderful life in, in science. I always say to people, I never woke up in the, in the morning and said, I've got to go to work. You know? So the old-fashioned science that I'm talking about, I mean, I saw it change over the years, but it was so wonderful. It was a an artistic endeavour, mm. a cultural wonder. And now I worry that it's become a treadmill. Yeah. And all that wonder, um, I mean... Hopefully, I, hopefully not, though. Yeah. As I keep saying, I mean, I keep mentioning Brian Cox. I've not got a, any affection for him, just to clear. Yeah, but, don't, please, we'll you know, off, we'll I mean, he he sees he sees all this beauty. He's on the podcast next week. Actually. Is he really? <laughs> <laughs> he'll be no, he'll no doubt be he'll no doubt be trolling me for mentioning his name so often. But I just see him as an example, and I'm not critical of him because I think he's he's done he does some great work. But um, you know, it's this very restricted view of science as a yeah and he i mean he talks about the wonder of it so i know he appreciates the wonder of billions and billions and billions of stars and all this and i i know he appreciates the wonder but i just wonder if people know how science well they, they, they've done history of science but they don't seem to understand that it's a it needs to be a kind of a random massive event you know somebody once said to me the way to do science is to get as many people doing it don't have the big groups. Just get as many people doing it as you can because then you're going to have more options in thinking. Mm. I often think, I, I don't know if you know about how you get scientific money and so forth. You have to have these grants and you put in a, you spend hours and hours of wasting your time writing about what you're going to do. Actually, you've done most of it beforehand, if you have any sense. Um, so you write this massive compendium of your ideas. It goes to a committee. Now, as soon as a committee comes into anything, You've got problem. Yeah. So this committee sits around and says, are we going to give him this grant, this money to do this? Now, clearly, they're only going to be working on the ideas that they know about. They're not going to be thinking, this guy wants to look for life coming in from space. <laughs> and yeah. we're not giving money for that. Do you know what I mean? Zzz, next one. So a committee can't think outside the box. It is the box. <laughs> yeah, of course. And um, so, what, so they give you the money. And then you think about that and you employ postgraduates and those postgraduates immediately get your perspective on, on science. So they immediately believe in the big gang, bang, big gang, the big bang, because they are postgraduate students, you know. And yeah. you never say to them, that, people never say to them, if you're working in the big bang, go, go away and come back next week and tell me what's wrong with the big bang. 
Now, that's what I would do. Yeah. I'd say, you tell me what, what is wrong. Where's the weakness in this idea? Mm. No, I believe it. You believe in the Big Bang. I believe in the Big Bang. It's like global warming, you know? I don't know, I don't know enough about global warming to know if it's true or not. I'm yeah. not into that. But I know it's very worrying when people say the science is done, the science is settled, and they won't listen. They will not have a conference yeah, a where the so-called deniers, these nasty people who deny this scientific idea, are allowed to say something, you know what I mean? And these are evil people, you know, the deniers. Yeah. And these people work in science, often, they're not, not taxi drivers. They've got PhDs like they have. They've got university places. And yet they will not let them speak. Yeah, that's, I think that's a big Big it's point. frightening. Yeah, it's a big point you made there because we actually um, something that we're trying to model on the podcast. We um, we've done a few now. We've had I think we put one out so far, but we've started doing debates where we have opposing point of views yeah. come together on a table, yeah. and um, they just put their argument across and yeah. just sit and just and basically just allow allow the discussion to happen because yeah. that's like the important yeah. thing is the discussion isn't really happening. Yeah. It's not yeah, allowed absolutely. to happen. Yeah. I mean, settled science is, is anathema to science. The concept of settled science, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. And um, the fact that these, I mean, I'm very interested in heretics. I, I, I did a lecture on heretics, you know, people who go against. Now, the, the interesting thing about heretics is, I mean, even in this day and age, you don't have to go to Galileo. They're being sacked for their heresies. They're being denied grants, denied money, denied positions. Can you believe this, even in this day and age? And I can give you, my lecture on the internet gives a number of examples. Like, for example, Jacques Benveniste, The Memory of Water, and so on, things like this. Hounded, I went to interview Benveniste. He came up with this idea, apparently unscientific, ridiculous, and he gets hounded out of his job. Can you believe this? Yeah. And um, so this is what you do with people who come up with new daft ideas. You hand them out of there. So who's, who's going to come up with daft ideas with any sense? Who's got a family? Yeah. You know? uh, something that, sorry, you're jumping again. And something I had my in my mind there was not only just how many I... Um, how many sort of new theories have uh, have like sort of been stopped in the tracks? But how many new ideas in terms of like and uh, ideas that can sort of change the face of the planet? How many ideas have come forward that pe some people have said, "No, we can't do this for yeah. conspiratorial reasons," or mm. or just people don't believe in that idea. An mm. idea could have come along yeah. that could have changed cancer, or could have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, right Any, now, anything really. we're coming at the conclusion that the educational system, as we're all said, the weeding out these these widespread ideas, sorry, these like these lunacy ideas, what they class as, yeah. and they're looking at finding this one tr globalized truth where every scientist yeah. on earth can... The meaning of everything. Yes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what that's what they're hoping for. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I would sack any vice chancellor who sacks somebody for, for ideas. You're supposed to have, I mean... The university I work, you're supposed to have um, statutes of free speech, you know, statutes of academic freedom. Those statutes don't work because nothing works. You know. mm. They're written down that you can, you can say what you want as an academic within the law. Obviously, you can't be racist or anything. You can say what you want. You can publish what you want, and you can talk about what you want. But those, those academic freedoms are being restricted because of this money problem. So basically, say you've got academic freedom, but you toe the line. If you want academic freedom, you toe the line or you're out, or you're given problems. Your office is moved, or, yeah. you know, you can't... I mean, I got to the point where I couldn't do press releases through my, through my university on this. Um, fortunately, by then, I knew a lot of uh, people in the media who I could circumvent the press office. I was going to say, would you suggest, just, I would just to sort of give a bit of advice... 
of your experience, would, would you say to suggest to, and this is something, maybe something mm. I'm suggesting, but yeah. I would just like to see if you agree with us or not. Yeah. But we're living in a time now where people can, that you don't have to rely on an establishment to, to like put your ideas yeah. across. Yeah. You don't even need to rely on an establishment yeah. to like, to give you the money to do the yeah. experiment. There's crowdfunding crowdsourcing. now where you can crowdsource things yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But say for a younger uh, scientist coming through or somebody who's just asking bigger questions and feels that he's refined to a certain box, would you see it actually, I mean, this is what I'm thinking, is that they could actually, instead of just having all the eggs in one basket, let's say, they can actually create their own media platform, in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Like a scientist could do, even just, yeah. he could do a podcast, he could, he could just make sure that he's, He's putting all the information yeah. in a well, certain place where people can yeah. have access well, to it. Well, all of my information on this has been put out. I've yeah. done I've done videos and everything. But nobody's checking it. No, because, of course, you've got the scientific establishment who are working in their yeah. way. They don't care about these podcasts. And everything. You can't get your ideas necessarily listened to by having podcasts. I think you'd be surprised you know how many people... Uh, I'm talking about the podcasts. establishment, not about oh, people who, oh, right, who right, look right, at podcasts. Right, right, right. But nobody's going to look at this podcast. No man from NASA is going to look at this podcast, I don't think, and saying, right, we must repeat this because it's not within... Yeah. It's not within their knowledge framework that they want to repeat it. Yeah. We've had a lot of that actually. We've had we've um, tried to interview a lot of um, mainstream people in the academic world, and they won't they won't get no, involved with your podcast. No, because it's very, it's very hard. But they, it's very you see, hard. they can't no matter what they think, they can't break out of this straitjacket. And I used to say to to my, I used to lecture on this in philosophy of science lectures, and I said to young scientists, I said, okay, you've heard what I've said, so you've got two options in life. You're going to be scientists, some of you. You can either toe the line, you can get your papers published, you can get your grants, you can get your money, you can get a fellowship of the Royal Society, you can be a professor, maybe a Nobel Prize if you've, you're lucky, um, or you could go another route. Now, who's mad? You know, who's going to go down the other route? You know, we all want, we've all got families, we might all have families in the future. You know, we need money for the cars and everything, we need to live, we need food, you know. Why would you be a heretic? Why would you do that? And remember, heretic, this is not a kind of, you know, little problem. Oh, we talk about heretics losing their jobs. People like Duesberg losing their grants. You know, this is the guy who came up with the idea that AIDS is not caused by HIV. We're talking about established scientists, very good established scientists. Duesberg was one of the top, and, and Benveniste, one of the top scientists. They come up with this different idea whoops they don't exist they're sacked then they're non-people i mean i talked to um benveniste this idea memory of water that water has a memory yeah, that's we, fascinating can, that. yeah. uh, jerry gerald pollock he wrote a great book on yeah, that as well yeah yeah so i i went over because i like to interview these heretics and, and talk to them so i went over to jacques in france and the, he said you know milton he says i was one of science uh, france's top scientists you know Published in Nature, published in all the journals, got the grants. I think, I don't know, the Freed Legion of Honor, whatever they gave him. You know, I was, I was the bee's knees. And I came up with this bad idea. All of a sudden, I'm useless. I'm not a scientist anymore. You know, I'm a heretic. Nobody listens to me in the right places. They don't give me grants. In fact, what, what he said they did, they sacked him from the university. But in France, he's a... He, well, sorry, from, I think it was the civil servant. In France, civil servants have a job for life, so they couldn't really sack him. So they essentially said, get out of our way. We'll give you your wage. You know, Just don't talk about this. You know? yeah. So 
he, he thought, well, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what I'm doing. So he actually put a porter cabin in the grounds of the institute and got money from Japanese technology, biotechnology companies and kept, kept on working. So that is real fighting, you know what I mean? I haven't, got, okay. I haven't got the balls to fight like that, you know what I mean? That's real taking on the establishment. <laughs> and that takes a lot of balls because you're a non-person. And these people, and it affects your life, your wife, your kids, mm. and universities, royal societies. The establishment is, is doing this to real people, ruining them. Can you believe this? This is actually, the Stasi got away with this, you know. And we're talking about established now. A lot of scientists who are listening to it will just think this guy's flipped. You know, he's do, he doesn't know what. He, yeah, science is wonderful. It's, it's progressing wonderful. I can show the statistics. Well. I agree with him, he can. But I'm talking about a different reality and um, a reality that that critic is either doesn't know about or doesn't want to know about. Okay. Like It's like everything, isn't it? Like, I can't relate to racism, homophobia, you know what I mean? Mm. I, can, I can say, well, it's wrong or something, but I can't relate to it. Well, if you're on this gravy train of making money out of science, you can't relate to what I'm talking about. Why would you? Because mm -hmm. you, you think what you're doing is the image of perfection, and I don't. Yeah. So, there you go. Anyway, fortunately, um, I'm I'm well out of it. I'm down here in Wales, put out to grass literally, and uh, uh, I'm having a wonderful life and everything. And I've had a fantastic, you know. If if there's a god, I'll say to him, thanks for that one. I'll I'll take that one. Yeah, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, don't send me back as a, a concentration camp. You know, if there's a return of life, give me that one again. <laughs> or, is it, or is it sheep? That's a shame. No, yeah. Well, you know, sheep. I, I look at it. It's amazing what you don't know till you know. I was. I always look at sheep in the bad weather and I think, oh, the poor cold buggers. Yeah. Oh, what a life. Then there's a program on the telly where it's showing showing the thermal imaging of a sheep in cold weather. It's wonderfully warm. You know, it's fantastic. It's warmer than I am. In here. <laughs> so they're looking in there and saying, look at those guys having to burn cold. I don't to want to be warm. human. I don't want to be a human. They're freezing to death. Should we uh, leave it there? You reckon? I think that's right. Anyway, yeah. sorry for going on as I am. In no, Cool. To do. Cool but I'm sure that's what you want me to do. Nothing, well, it's you. been wonderful. I've really enjoyed that. Cool. Yeah. You guys keep up the good, keep up the faith, keep going. Keep, exactly up, well. keep up the fight. And if you're a nutty professor, get in touch. Yes, any all those nutty professors, we need a guild of nutty professors. Fellowship of the Royal Nutty Professor Society. <laughs> exactly. That's I cool. like that. Yeah, they did, but they deny me entrance, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be nutty enough. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It really means a lot to us that you tune in and listen to this thing. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation there about panspermia. Really is an interesting concept. And also as well, some of the, th some of the things that we mentioned in this podcast, some of the pictures, especially the um, silver orb we talked about, that is the pictures to that are also in the show notes. So if you want to check that out, you can do. If you also want to help us out and support the podcast and you believe that what we're doing is, is a conscious thing and a conscious movement, Please, if you can, find it in your heart, support us through our Patreon page or our one-off donation option. It really would mean a lot to us and help us to keep doing what we're doing. Next week on the podcast, we have an episode with a guy called Stephen Ferber, where me and Chris headed down to Manchester to do this one. Really is an interesting guy. He spent £19 million building a replica of the human brain. So that conversation, as you know, obviously goes all over the place so look out for that podcast next week we have some other amazing podcasts lined up that and other people we plan on coming coming on the podcast so the future is bright people <laughs> so anyway we love you all and peace and love